Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, lads and lassies, and those that don't subscribe to gender, welcome to the GOT Got Questions podcast with Spencer and Lee. Spencer, say hey to the people. Where am I? What are we doing? It's been too long. It has been very long. The people have been clamoring. I've actually had people ask if we discontinued the podcast. Rest assured, general public, the GOT Got Questions podcast is very much alive. We're here, season one, episode four. We're continuing our season one coverage. We're sorry about the delay. I will give you a little bit of behind the scenes on the delay. Um, Spencer had some things going on. He had to move. There were some holidays going on. So we uh, we, we had a break. Um, and then a couple weeks ago, I think Spencer was about ready. And then I started the, the delays. And I delayed enough that when we we got on the call tonight, uh, I told I jokingly told Spencer, all right, I gotta, I'm going to have to delay again. And he just hung up on me. <laughs> Just no you didn't words even exchanged. say anything. You just hung up, and I was like, "Dude, I have to make sure he knows I'm joking." <laughs> and he called me back, and I just stared at it for like 20 seconds. I'm like, "Is he gonna, is he actually backing out? He might actually be backing out. Do I want to deal with this?" <laughs> no, I'm not backing out. We're doing it. Season one, episode four of our coverage of HBO's Game of Thrones. This episode is titled "Crippleds, Bastards, and Broken Things." But before we jump into that, there's been a little bit of Game of Thrones news since we've been off the air and that is that they released released a teaser trailer for season eight um probably their most developed teaser trailer to date really i mean most of the teaser trailers we've seen for prior seasons are just basically a screen with words that appear on it with maybe maybe some moving clouds that are occurring in the background this is apparently a straight-up production they made just for this teaser yeah, they're going to great lengths to not give us actual footage. Uh, so they actually <laughs> produced a teaser where, if you haven't seen it, uh, you can go to uh, HBO's uh, YouTube channel and check it out. Or you can go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Talks, and we've linked to it. And basically it's um, John, Sansa, and Arya in the crypts of Winterfell. They're walking down, and then they see statues of themselves. Then the, the sort of frost comes in. And uh, John and Arya pull their swords, uh, and it, it I, I guess it symbolizes um, the Starks having this sort of battle for the realm uh, against the White Walkers. Yeah, there's the clear theme as well that the Starks themselves are vulnerable. I mean, you and I have referenced previously that the last couple seasons have felt a bit off the usual tone of the show and that there clearly are main characters that are protected regardless of the circumstances that they're in. The focus on this seems to be that, to remind us that the Starks are mortal and that they are under threat. They're passing the statues of Catelyn and Ned. They're, they're hearing their final words in their heads. And as they approach the end and they see their own statues, winter descends upon them and all they can do is turn and face it. We've talked right. about how important it will be to have actual risks and costs and casualties this season. And this seems to be representing that they're going in that direction. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, I think that the big potential spoiler here or totally possible we're reading way too much into this is that it looked like john's statue was a lot older um than sansa and Arya's. if you look at it sansa and Arya, it's pretty much about a dead ringer for the age they are now Arya looks a little bit younger than she is now uh but john looks like he's in he's a grizzled vet like he's an old man big beard uh different hair so, of course, that led folks to theorize that this is indicating that John is one of the three that will survive. And by the time that he dies and they make his statue, he'll be an old man. That is, I don't know. That is interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. But I, I think I even commented when we watched it that he kind of looked in the mold of Ned Stark more than he does now. So that, that is, that's an interesting little theory there, man. 
Yeah, and we were um, on the Mangum Talks Facebook page that you don't go on because you don't go on Facebook. Uh, mm-hmm. I was actually going back and forth with a couple of listeners about this. Uh, and we were all kind of like, well, that's totally possible. Uh, but it would just seem to be um, tipping the cap a little bit more uh, or, or tipping the hand a little bit more than I think Dan and Dave, uh, the showrunners for uh, Game of Thrones, typically do. So I'm dubious of it, but I did like the teaser and I'm super excited to actually see footage. Me too. And I guess my ultimate stance on the theory would be it would defy a lot of expectations. Because as we've talked about before, I think of the three, we feel that John is the single most likely to die. But the show exists to subvert our expectations for how it's going to play out. Well, let's quickly rank uh, the three uh, most likely to die to least likely. Go. Uh, John most, uh, Sansa least. Yeah, same way. John Arya Sansa. Uh, Which is weird because Sansa's the only one that can't defend herself, but for, I, I just don't see her kicking off. I think she's going to be Lady of Winterfell until she's like 80. Well, she's also a lot less actively suicidal compared to her two compatriots. I mean, John and Arya find creative ways to expose themselves to danger on a regular basis, whereas Sansa is behind the scenes, behind the walls of Winterfell. By the time Sansa dies, everything else has gone to shit, and Arya and John are long since dead in the first battle of the entire campaign. At least you hope, you Sansa apologist, you. I have my theories and I'm sticking to them. Let's move on. Okay, we'll start with the opening credits of uh, Season 1, Episode 4. Oh, okay. hold on. Before we get into that, we'll talk about format. Uh, if dust the cobwebs off for the listeners because it has Please. been a while. Uh, we do a recap. Uh, we go back and forth talking about uh, the individual scenes of the episode. Then we'll go to best line of the episode. I'm emperor of that segment. I pick it. I pick it alone. And then we go to a little segment called Book Nerd Bitching where Spencer will give me a variety of topics um, that a book nerd watching the show... Uh, would potentially have issues with or wants to provide a little bit of context about the world that you get in the books you don't get in the show. Uh, I'll pick a few of them. Spencer will talk about them. Uh, And then I vote them up or down uh, in Congress and the president either signs them or uh, they don't go uh, into law. So that's kind of how that all works. Mm-hmm. Um, anything you want to add about that before we jump into the opening credits? Uh, just that you continually will always pick the one topics I've never prepared for every single damn time. So we'll just see how book nerd bitching plays out. <laughs> I'm going to do my best to do that exact thing at the end of the episode. So we'll start with the opening credits. Again, we talked about this in our uh, episode three coverage. It, Spencer, is it just me? They do so much more flashback uh scenes i mean it's it's two three minutes of flashback scenes we've only had three episodes um we theorized in the last episode that um that they're doing this because they're still trying to bring you along i mean it's you're only at four episodes in to this show about a really complex world uh and they're just trying to make sure everybody kind of is up to speed and knows what's going on uh i still think they're doing that what do you think I, very much so i mean we talked about how the actual meat of the episode is very much trusting its listeners trusting its watcher to just kind of keep going to kind of keep kind of flow through because it's much more closely adhering to the books but as you said be it the producers be it hbo themselves clearly were worried that people were getting lost were clearly worried that unless they held their hands at least with the recap to get them back up to speed each episode or maybe they were even, and this is probably true, they were continually hoping for new listeners to be able to jump in with each episode rather than having to watch all the ones that came before, particularly in a pre-HBO Go world that the show originally started in. So between being worried about just the meat and density of the show and also recognizing that it was a show that people may just be jumping in as they're hearing word of mouth about it, the recaps are massive in a way that they aren't anymore in the show. Yeah, it really kind of sticks out. But anyway, the flashback includes a lot of John being miserable at the wall. Uh, We get the line, which might be one of the best lines of the entire series. Yep, I said it. 
You said the same thing you've been saying for hours. Burn them all. Wonderful. That's Jamie Lannister uh, talking to King Bobby B. And we uh, also get references to the tournament King Bobby B. is throwing for Eddard Stark. He's clearly excited about this. Um, and I, I I took the the flashbacks to really be setting up this Lannister versus Stark, um, you know, confrontation, which we really get we get throughout the episode, but we really get in the final scene of the episode. I think very much so. so yeah, so that's it for the opening credits. Uh, so we start in what looks like Winterfell, and Bran is walking. So that tells us this is either a flashback or a dream. And he is following a three-eyed raven, or if you read the books, crow. Uh, and clearly, um, it, it, he's, he's following, he's interested in this raven. He's following it into a hallway. He looks at it, it looks up, and he sees it has three eyes, and he wakes up. Did you see where it was drawing him to as well? No, I didn't. Drop some knowledge on me. It was drawing him towards the crypts. Ah, again, Winterfell crypts. That's a, it's a huge thing in the show. Very, huge huge thing indeed, and it's going to prove very relevant with some of the visions that he has later on as the season goes. Yeah. He wakes up, and Old Nan is sitting next to him. It's going to be a little hard for me to talk about Old Nan, because i got some takeout Indian waiting for me. After, uh, <laughs> You've after got fresh episode. I'm really looking forward to some non-bread. But she she's sitting there. The little Lord awakens. I love this actress who yeah. plays Old Nan. I think she crushes it. Uh, Theon walks in. He announces they have visitors. Uh, Brand clearly doesn't want to see anyone, and you, you don't understand why he's recently crippled. Uh, and then Theon drops this line, which is just heartbreaking. Uh, in retrospect, Rob is Lord of Winterfell. That means I do what he says, and you do what I say. Oof. That doesn't last long. Yeah, I love how Theon just exudes dick in every scene that he's in. Alfie Allen does a wonderful job of the character of even when he's on your side, you just kind of hate him. He's a real piece of shit. Um, yeah, and then we see, I think this is for the first time in the series, right? It is. Hodor? Hodor charges in and already a master of his role. Yeah, this actor, I mean, it's covered everywhere, but he kills it. He kind of jostles in kind of clumsily. Hodor, Hodor. And uh, Hodor picks Bran up to take him to the Great Hall. Uh, the visitor is Tyrion. Uh, and clearly Tyrion is frustrated. Um, uh, with how he's being received. He explains, like, uh, this is a little different than uh, when I came the last time, when I came with the king and my sister and my brother. Um, and in that frustration, he refers to Rob as a boy. This is the first time uh, that we see Rob push back on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but he does, uh, throughout the series, uh, at one point taking off a finger for somebody, calling him boy. Uh, Rob doesn't like being called boy. Mm-mm. Yeah, and Bran comes in, and Tyrion looks genuinely upset that that uh, Bran is is crippled. He says something along the lines of like, "So it's true," and he looks deflated. Um, and he ha- he asks Hodor to bring Bran down to his level, and he asks Bran if he remembers anything, and of course he doesn't. <clears throat> and Rob asks why Tyrion is there, uh, and Tyrion asks Bran if he likes to ride. And uh, everybody's like, "What the hell? Like, what, why are you asking?" He lost the the, the the you know the ability to use his legs, and, and Tyrion drops the line. Even a cripple can ride. And Bran says, "I'm not a cripple." And Tyrion says, "Then I'm not a dwarf." My father will rejoice to hear it. I love that line again. Uh, me too. Again, Tyrion, you know, having empathy. He as a dwarf now empathizes with Bran because they both uh, they don't have a leg up, right? They're they're starting uh, they're starting behind the curve here because he can't walk. Tyrion's three foot tall. Um, it's a, but it's also the same kind of speech that he offered to John too, of where it's wear what they would hurt you with, like armor. 
he's always for people like Bran, people like John that are very much wrapped up in this trauma of what they are. His continual philosophy is not only just confront it, accept it, and embrace it. Crippled, bastards, and broken things. Yep, covers all three. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says, "What of it? Even a cripple can ride." And he um, gives a design of a saddle that I, I, I suppose that Tyrion just drew. Um, which is super impressive because he clearly would have had to draw it uh, on the the ride down from the wall uh, to Winterfell, and I can't imagine he had a lot of like supplies with him. So he's having to do this all just in his mind, which is really really impressive. Uh, and Rob asks if it's a trick. <laughs> what the fuck, Rob? <laughs> like, <laughs> what's it gonna break when he gets on it? Come on, man. And this is like, this is uh, emblematic of the Starks. Like, they are slow. They are slow on the pickup because it takes all of the Starks an obnoxious amount of time to figure out that Tyrion is not like the rest of the Lannisters because still Rob is treating him like the rest of the Lannisters despite the fact he stopped. He asked about Bran. He seemed clearly upset about it. And he had gone through the trouble of drawing him a saddle so that Bran can now ride. Rob still distrusts him just because his last name's Lannister. It, it, um, it's likely a certain degree of history and background of where, you know, their main frame of reference about the Lannisters is coming from their dad, who does not have the best of opinions about them. And as we often see throughout the series, Tyrion's kind of put at a disadvantage based on the entire nature of the rest of his family. Yeah, it's true. But I, I, I just feel like the Starks and, and Catelyn is the same. <clears throat> um, they all are. They, they're slow on the pickup that he's not uh, he's not like Cersei and Jamie in his intense. Uh, I, I, I did get excited. Yeah. I did get really excited, though, about a Tyrion Bran um, reunion in season eight. Wow. I hadn't even thought about that. Huh. Because think about it. Think about when, when Samuel Tarly comes in to greet Bran in uh, the last episode of season seven. And he said, he immediately calls out, he says, You helped me get north of the wall. You're a good man. I can totally see the same sort of conversation, right, with Bran and Tyrion. Like, hey, you showed me kindness when I was at my low. I'd, you know? I'd, I'd actually even forgotten that Tyrion is on the boat <laughs> with uh, John and Danny riding up, to the, going up to the wall. So yeah, that reunion is set in stone and going to happen unless, for any reason, uh, the boat gets misrouted or Tyrion dies. Yeah, he's very much on the boat, staring longingly at Danny's door, which John just shut. <laughs> uh, t- so he, uh, Tyrion explains to Rob that he. I have a tender spot in my heart for crippled, bastards, and broken things. Uh, Bran smiles, which I, I really like that moment, and Rob offers Tyrion a place to stay in Winterfell somewhat reluctantly, and Tyrion calls that horse shit out and says, Spare me your false courtesies, Lord Stark. And t- typical Tyrion fashion says he'll stay at a local brothel. I, I, Anything you want to talk about this scene? I, I, I also dorged a little bit of continuity in this scene. Like, I love the difference in the um, treatment that John... That, um, that Rob has for Yorin, who is, of course, traveling with Tyrion versus what he, uh, how he responds to Tyrion. I also just still love the continuity of those two Lannister guards that are always in the background of every scene. And as we've joked, God, did they get the shit post with respect to this assignment. Yeah, it's not good. <laughs> they just have to kind of go around from brothel to brothel with Tyrion. And, pro- and carry his paper and carry all of his riding tools, because you know Tyrion's not carrying them on his own horse. No. Well, Tyrion makes no uh, no delay in trying to get out of there, so he mounts his horse. They're getting ready to leave, <clears throat> and Theon walks up, uh, and Theon recommends Roz to Tyrion. Uh, Roz is uh, a very we saw her in the first episode. Um, 
yeah, and it's uh, Roz is just kind of this ubiquitous like uh, prostitute that keeps coming up over and over again. She ends up being a relatively important minor character, I could say. She gets uh, named later on. She gets name dropped, I think, twice in this episode. We find out that both Theon and apparently John are rather enamored with her. Mm, and I can see why Tyrion then asks Cat why Cat isn't in Winterfell. He's a perceptive guy. Uh, he's clearly sussed out that something is amiss here. Cat's not there. Everyone's treating him differently. Like he's mm-hmm. like, what's going on? And so he's he's getting at what what's happening here, which is the Starks seem to think that the Lannisters were behind uh, Brand's not only potentially his fall, but then his assassination attempt. Oh, he makes an appearance. Uh, hey, buddy he has to show up at some point or another. <laughs> All right, we'll we'll push through. He's he's part of the uh, he's part of the pot at this point. He does. Let me just smack him one second. He didn't mean that. He's not really Bye. smacking his dog. Dang, man. I've never, I, so for folks listening, I've never heard Spencer get that serious. That kind of scared me a little bit. All right, I've calmed him, calmed him for five minutes. We'll see if it actually lasts that long. Poppy, come here. <laughs> so then Tyrion chastises Theon for his loyalty to his captors. Uh, and, you know, scenes like this give me a little bit of sympathy for Theon because Theon is in a tough spot. He's doing what he has to do which is kind of go along with the with the starks i do think that he likes the starks especially the stark children how could you, but Tyrion how could immediately you not? Tyrion immediately starts making fun of him for it um uh Tyrion then brings up that during the greyjoy rebe- rebellion the greyjoys burned the lannister fleet um uh, potential uh, book nerd bitching and, and i uh, at, at an aspect of that he specifically says when your uncles uncles Plural. They were still intending to have more than one Greyjoy uncle at this point. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is really early on. Yeah, very uh, early. Theon, Theon seems to take some pride in this until Tyrion reminds him that they lost. Yeah. <laughs> and then Theon uh, says, "Well, we were outnumbered ten to one." And Th- Tyrion, with a hard counter punch, punch, says, "A stupid rebellion." Then. Yeah. Uh, Spencer, do you think the numbers are right there? Do you think they're really outnumbered ten to one? I mean, the the Iron Isles are incredible. Are very lowly. Um, they have a relatively small population. They were literally fighting against the entirety of the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. Ten to one is probably pretty dead on, if not even worse. I mean, hell, the Reach itself may have a population like six or seven, or who even knows how many more times than all the than the, all the Iron Isles combined. The advantage the Iron Isles had is not in numbers; it's just in their ability to raid quickly and get away quickly. For any prolonged fight, they're doomed to lose. For anybody that actually cares to defeat them. So you would agree that it was a stupid rebellion? I would agree wholeheartedly. I think everyone would agree wholeheartedly. I think even Balon Greyjoy would agree wholeheartedly when he loses two of his sons in the process. Well, loses two of his sons to actually being killed, and loses his other surviving heir to being a captor of the main force that helped defeat him. I think at that moment he probably even accepted that he'd fucked up. Woo, Spencer working blue. Um, then Tyrion says um, he disappoints his father as well, which, you know, that's a, a way. Tyrion is really good at this sort of like self-effacing, like, yeah, I'm I'm a cripple. Or, yeah, my dad doesn't like me, right? And I, that's how I'm going to connect with you. And he does that, tries to anyway with Theon. And then he gives Theon a coin and he says, well, try not to wear Roz out. Now, here's a question for you, Spencer. We have already seen Roz. Roz was in the first uh, scene where we see Tyrion, mm-hmm. uh, where Tyrion is uh, in a brothel and he's hooking up with Ross. Mm-hmm. So my question is, is this uh, discontinuity in the show, right? Or is it that Tyrion just never bothered to get the name of Ross to begin with? Or he's just not bothering to reveal that information to Theon just so he can find a new way to mock him. 
Smith. Yeah. I think we got options there. A question I have for you, though. How much do you I mean? Why do you feel that uh, Tyrion went back to Winterfell? Was it just because it was on the King's Road south from the Wall? Or did he go here to mine a certain amount of information? Because we already know that he was, he said very clearly that he was very interested to know what Bran would say when he woke up. Yep, Spencer, you're reading off my notes. I, I do believe that he stopped back in Winterfell for the primary reason of wanting to talk to Bran, because he heard Bran woke up, uh, to see what happened. Because he has his suspicions... God. <laughs> guy. Uh, he has this suspicions that the Lannisters had something to do with it. Or at least they they, 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 they did something that did not. I'll keep talking. Yeah. Did something that could, did not um, help the situation, right? He, uh, he, he thinks that Jamie and Cersei are in some ways culpable. So he is going back there to try to figure that out. I think he also uh, somewhat uh, reasonably suspects that he'll be treated well there because he was treated well there before like why wouldn't you want to stop at winterfell where else would you go yeah it makes perfect sense to me but one of the things i'm curious about is he purely just investigating this for his own curiosity out of caring for bran or is this there is an element of i need to know what he knows to protect my family with Tyrion, you're never sure he's a bundle mix of conflicting motivations yeah it could be i didn't think of it that way i always just kind of assumed that it, it was more of a condemnation of Jamie and Cersei in their actions as opposed to I want to protect them. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure Tyrion fully knows. He just needs he, just, he wants the information and then probably will decide from there what to do with it. Though admittedly, right. if Bran immediately tells him, yeah, Jamie and Cersei pushed me out a window, Tyrion has to believe his own life is suspect his, his own life is in, you know, in question at that point. Yeah. Yeah, unless he unless he tips his hand and says, "Hey, look, you know, what siblings are assholes and i'm with you and oh by the way i, I got these designs to help him ride and ah, please don't kill me right i think that's probably what he'd go into um but yeah i, I think his intentions here and his motivations are, are not particularly clear mm-hmm. anything else on the scene in winterfell no just a great a collection of scenes that just very much embody the nature of Tyrion as a person that is that said that quote of i'm a i'm not a, uh, that uh, i tender spot in my heart cripples bastards and broken things him forcing people to confront various aspects of themselves that they are unhappy with while at the same time using every opportunity to take the piss out of those in desperate need of it. We in these couple scenes just see pretty much the primary aspects of Tyrion's character put on screen. And it does uh, make me a little bit sad about where his character goes in the show because in season seven there is like zero character development right for Tyrion um, at all. He has shit to do. They've run out of things to plan for him to do. And that's just sad. As you said, he has no character growth. He has no character progression. He has very little relevance to the plot. He's practically just an observer and a commenter. And I don't think that's going to change in season eight, to be honest with you. No. No. It's the Danny and John show at this point. And that's a sad thing to say, but it is what it is. All right. So we cut to the wall. Uh, we have a beautiful shot of Castle Black's courtyard. I love the the season one um, set for Castle Black. That's great. Uh, less CGI, more stuff they actually built. It's pretty cool. John Pip and Grim Grin are training, um, and a relatively large guy walks out, pretty disheveled, um, and the others start making fun of him immediately. And he explains he's Samuel Tarly of Horn Hill, and he's there to take the black. Now, the viewer doesn't know this, but if you read the book or if you have watched ahead at least john certainly alistair thorne probably not pip and grin are aware that the horn hills are a big deal yeah uh this is a it, to say he's highborn is an understatement yeah. 
Randall Tarley is well known throughout the land. His family lineage is just colossal and of utmost pedigree. This is a very notable person that's just wandered into their midst here. And they're probably all pretty curious to see how he's going to perform. And how does he perform, Lee? Uh, Rass starts sparring with Sam, beating him up pretty badly. Well, um, uh, John, Pip, and Grin. Go ahead. I, I just, just a little bit of a change up they do. I love the just expression on uh, Sam's face before he, Rass starts beating on him. Because for just a half a second, he's got a pretty badass look on his face of determination. And then it just shatters instantly once it's challenged. Yeah, he well, he tries. Right? I mean, he that's the only thing well. you can do with you. It's the only thing you can do in his position. It's like, all right, well, I, I, I'm here to take the black. They want me to spar. This is the rules. I'm going to try. Well, anyway, he gets beat up pretty badly, and John Pippin Grin look on uncomfortably. Uh, and this is where, again, you can start to see the differentiation between Rast and John Pippin Grin. Mm-hmm. Rast seems to be enjoying beating up Sam, where the other three are, are, are not. They might be okay with the fact they're sparring to varying degrees between the three, but they don't like that he's getting the crap kicked out of them. No, they're all very clearly uncomfortable with it, but only one of them chooses to actually step in and intervene. And even then, he does so when one of, I think it's Pip actually tries to stop him. Yeah, John says, that's enough, he yielded. Um, and then Alistair Thorne drops the line, looks like the bastard's in love. That's <laughs> the great line. <laughs> then, Alistair, then Alistair Thorne pits um, Pip, Grin, and Rast against John. Uh, and John has this great line where I think he looks at uh, at Graham Grin and says, uh, "Are you sure you want to do this?" And he goes, "No, no. I'm not." That's a good, <laughs> it's a great line. Just, they all know they're about to die right now. No, I'm not. John easily beats all three of them, uh, and Thorne tells John and Sam to clean the armory, telling John that's all you're good for, uh, which is really stupid because he just beat he just won three on one, and you're saying all he's good for is cleaning up the armory. Like Alistair Thorne is just he's just pissed. Oh, he's yeah he, he he leads with emotion a lot of times. He's he's sort of I don't think he's I don't think he's that good at his job, but we can get to that. Um, we can discuss that in John detail. Tells, I'm sure. John says, uh, it's not going to get any easier, you know. You'll have to learn to defend yourself. And Sam explains, look, I understand that, but I'm a coward. I just want to thank you for what you did. Uh, and in, in my notes here, and I did these notes like a, a month ago, I just wrote, the three don't know much what to do with Sam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Grin apparently believes that cowardice is catching. Is that what is that his interpretation of this event? Or that at least you people are guilt by association by even being close to him? Well, you got to think that like the people who go there are usually hardened folks. They either want to be there and they've trained or they're they're criminals. Oh, yeah. uh, and this guy just gets there and he openly says he's a coward. And that's like it's like the strangest thing to even hear someone say that, I would imagine. I, I'm willing to bet they've probably never heard someone say it. I'm willing to bet that Alistair Thorne probably doesn't even know what to do with that. It's just it's an anathema. He knows exactly what to do with it. He knows what he's going to do with it. He probably doesn't know what he should be doing with it. Right. Yeah. You can clean the armory and get crap kicked out of you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Anything more on this scene in Castle Black? No, I think it probably finishes up. Cool. We'll go to Essos and the Kalasar is riding. Drogo, uh, Drogo is at the lead and they pass under a stone monument of two horses that are kind of rearing up and seem to be fighting. Right? Or at least the front hooves are kind of batting at each other. Uh, creating this sort of arc that they're they're riding under. Mm-hmm. The Great Horse Gate. They've entered Vaistothrak. Yeah, and I love the difference between season one and season six. Vaistothrak. 
<laughs> entrance because in season one it's about I don't know maybe what would you say Spencer twenty five feet tall maybe it's a realistic gate yes by season six <laughs> season six it's like a hundred feet tall it's ridiculous it's freaking um, colossus of roads in horse form uh, Jorah uh, explains that it's Faisdothrak potential book nerd bitching alert mm-hmm. and Viserys insults the Dothraki. Uh, Danny challenges him and Viserys again asserts that this is his army. So this is when, um, I guess someone, some woman to tell me, tell me if I'm, I got this right. Some woman is being either abused or something. And, 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 uh, Danny says, stop. And he, she stops the entire Kalasar, which is a big deal. Cause this is like thousands and thousands of people. And she stops and she goes to look for the, the, the woman that, that I guess was being abused. And Viserys jumps out and says, how dare you command me? Uh, kind of attacks her a little bit, right? Mm, I think I think, I think we're describing something that happened in a prior episode. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, then my notes are old. Tell me what happened. Uh, essentially, they just kind of uh, <laughs> want they, they kind of wander in. They talk briefly about Dothraki culture. Viserys is just utterly unimpressed and is pissed that they're essentially riding in the wrong direction. Um, and meanwhile, Danny defends her people. It's one of the first times we've ever, ever heard her really distinctly say that she's embraced Dothraki culture. Well, Viserys, just in his usual funk, just kind of rides off. And as he does this little pouty ride off, Danny has their first honest conversation with Jorah about, hey, if the Dothraki actually back my brother, do we stand a chance? Can we actually conquer Westeros? Yeah, okay, I got you. All right, thanks for putting me back on uh, on track there, Spence. This is what happens when you when you don't do a podcast in two months. Uh, Jorah then explains that the Dothraki have never crossed the Narrow Sea, but if they did... Uh, King Robert might be fool enough to meet them in open combat, um, but the people around him probably wouldn't be. Remember this scene, because it's going to be directly rebutted by King Robert himself like four episodes from now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jorah then explains that the people... uh, Then Jorah explains that he fought with Robert years ago, uh, but now Ned Stark wants him dead. Danny reminds him that he sold slaves and asks why, and Jorah says he had an expensive wife, no money. Danny says, where is she now? Really sad quote here. In another place with another man. Yeah. And I like that the scene has an even mix of him very clearly resenting Ned for what's happened to him, but Danny also calling him on his shit and he really and he ultimately accepts that it's his sin that put him here more than anything else. Um it, it it's an interesting analysis of of Jorah and it's already demonstrating that they want to go with a much more noble aspect to his character and what they're focusing on here in the show because book jorah is pretty much just still just really pissed at ned and doesn't really accept much blame for who he is or what he does and it runs through a lot of his decisions throughout the books yeah yeah you do get that in show jorah that he 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 understands he, he kind of gets it but he still wants to be home uh so then we cut to just a very weird scene <laughs> <laughs> With Viserys and and a handmaiden, um, she's obviously obsessed, or at least very interested in dragons. She's asking about them. Viserys gives a brief history lesson on Blarian the Back Dread, mm-hmm. his dominance during the conquest, Aegon's conquest of the uh, Seven Kingdoms or of Westeros, um, and that Blarian the Black Dread was his, his dragon and helped him do so. The, the, there's a little. I'm going to let you jump in on this scene because it's it's a lot of like references to the lore of the Targaryens. Mm-hmm. Uh, which you're more versed in than me, but I did notice a little detail that the handmaiden, while flirting, pours candle wax on Viserys. And it hurts him. He says, ow. Now juxtapose that with the very first time we see Danny, 
and she gets into scalding hot water. Yeah, and, and that that is a good catch, and it's something that I think. The Thank book, you. This is what I'm here for. I'm here for equal equal mixed compliments and just raw scorn. You know, keep keep the cops <laughs> on your toes. This is a point that I think both the books and the author actually don't agree with each other on, which is fascinating to see. Of where the books, as we see here in the scene as well, take pains to put out that Danny is very much resistant to heat and fire and everything else. They've got several scenes depicting Danny being resistant to heat and fire. Wait a second. You, you say the show, not the books, right? Show and books. Both of them. Okay. But both of them do, do, do this a lot. This scene is created for the show. It's, a, it's an interesting little scene. As you said, well, the main things I got out of the scene throughout the first time was that the handmaiden is really pretty. But there's also some important lore that goes on here as well. But, yeah, I think it's an interesting catch that's going to come up again later that um, Viserys is not seemingly as heat immune as uh, Danny is. It's interesting you say that the books do that as well because my memory of the books is that there's only one event where Danny is uh immune to fire and it's like a magical event that happens spoiler alert at the end of the season and martin himself has said that danny is not resistant to fire i, I think in a counterpunch to the show and saying that 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 one thing was an isolated magical incident but targaryens are not and i immune just to fire and i just don't buy that because even in the books there are several scenes where danny resists fire this is a scene where she's straight up being bathed in her own dragon's fire and she just gets a couple blisters and loses her hair there, the same scene of her in the bath happens in the books. It's there, too, in terms of her heat resistance. Some of the scenes of her handling dragon eggs that I'm sitting in the brassiere are also in the books. I know he wants to frame this as being it's a one-time moment, but it seems just oddly inconsistent for some of the other scenes that he's already written in himself. I agree, though. The show does emphasize it more, and people came much more focused on it. I also agree that in many ways Martin offering this comment seems to be more of a desire to distance himself from the show and what it's doing rather than an actual honest commentary on what he's written himself in the books. I So this, that, you just made me very happy because I quote, I, I kind of paraphrase Martin and you said, I just don't buy that. <laughs> so you, that's you telling Martin, uh-uh, no, I don't buy what you're saying, which is pretty amazing. I think it's one of the first moments of Martin starting to get a little bit pissed that the show's doing things differently than he is. And I think, his comment on that reflects more of that than it does an actual honest analysis of the books. Yeah, I mean, now he's he's in open rebellion, or at least as open a rebellion as you can have with a with a program that gets you millions of dollars a year. But he does <laughs> seem say, very, yeah. very frustrated with the show. But anyway, go back to the to the, the uh, recap. Viserys then starts talking about. Uh, oh no, uh, sorry. Let's back up here because I think this is really interesting, and hopefully you have more in your notes than I do. The handmaiden starts to talk about the things that she's seen, her knowledge of the world, and she drops this bulleted list of things that she's seen. And man, she has seen some shit, Spencer. Mm -hmm. uh, she has seen. I actually took notes on this. I'm prepared. Uh, man, a man. Ha ha! I knew it. Hmm? What'd you say? I said, ha ha! I knew it. <laughs> Uh, a man from a shy with a dagger of real dragon glass. Uh, and then I'll quote her. I think I actually have the quote. I've seen a man who could change his face the way other men change their clothes, where if that's not a faceless man, I don't know what is. And the last one was a pirate dressed all in gold, uh, linked through his outfit with uh, colored sails. So of, the, of those, clearly number two is... A direct foreshadowing of a group that we're going to meet later on in this series. Yeah, so she has seen some stuff, uh, but then Viserys just moves right on to talk about the dragon skulls and how they gradually got smaller. <clears throat> so she talks about 
or he talked about in the throne room how the Targaryens would keep the dragon skulls and you know the biggest one was Balerion and then as you walked it got smaller and smaller until the last one was no bigger than a dog during this he references the skull of Meraxes now a little brief Westerosi history lesson from Lee you ready for this Spencer I'm shocked and appalled what what you got for me Meraxes was Queen Rhaenyra's Targaryen's dragon. Mm-hmm. She was one of two wives of Aegon the Conqueror, the first Targaryen king of Westeros. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she was the good-looking one. Eh, and... The other one wasn't bad. No, but she was the better-looking one, right? I mean, like that's, that's pretty well-asserted. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> Aegon spent the majority of the time uh, in her bed as opposed to his other wife. Visenya. Name of the other wife. You ready? Go. I just said it. Visenya. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Um, and what's interesting about the reference to the Meraxes skull, why I bring it up, is that you know we, we say that that Aegon is the the first king of the Seven Kingdoms, but he really kind of wasn't because he didn't finish the conquest of Dorne. He really Dorne. He only really had six kingdoms. Mm-hmm. And Rhaenys Targaryen went down the Dorne to try to bring them to heel, and Meraxes took a bolt through its eye, which killed it. Um, and, you know, uh, Meraxes went down, Rhaenys Targaryen went down with him. There is some um, speculation that maybe Rhaenys didn't die right away, but either way, Meraxes did. And so if you if you know that background, you would think, well, how the hell did, did they get the, the skull of Meraxes? Meraxes died down in Dorne. Do you know the answer? You know, actually, I don't. I could theorize that it was sent, that it was uh, possibly recovered once Dorne was incorporated in the Seven Kingdoms peacefully by marriage alliance, um, but that'd be my best theory as to how, how it was eventually reacquired. All right. Well, I'm, I'm really feeling good about myself after that earlier misstep during the recap. Uh, <laughs> Meraxes' skull was later returned to King's Landing by a Dornish peace delegation during the rule of the good King Darren. So this is when they finally came into the fold. So when Dorne finally came into the fold, the Targaryens finally were ruling over the Seven Kingdoms. They brought Meraxes as a peace offering. Give me half credit for that one at least. I was pretty damn close. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, you were you were you were you were spot on. Um, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you, you referenced one of my favorite theories though. Of um, we, Aegon the Conqueror did incredible damage to uh, Dorne. I mean, he basically laid waste to every single settlement, to every single castle. It was obliterated as an organized people. But they still resisted. They still refused to give in. And as Aegon was basically preparing a new invasion, dealing with constant assassination attempts that basically led to the creation of the Kingsguard, because so many friggin' Dornish were come to trying to get the Red Keep to kill him, uh, he receives a single letter as part of a new peace delegation. No one knows what's in this letter. It's never been revealed. We can only speculate. But one of the dominant theories is, basically the letter said, hey, Reyna is still alive. We have her. She's in agonizing pain. We can keep her in agonizing pain forever. Or you can pull back your armies. You can declare peace. You can end this unnecessarily devastating war. And we can give her a certain degree of mercy. And that's just a fascinating theory to ponder. It's it's even pondered by various meisters in the text that might be what the letter said. But whatever that letter was, it led to the end of the war in a fortnight. Yep, yep. And the, the war with Dorne and the Targaryens were kind of off and on until uh, the good King Darren. Uh, so anyway, that that that's, I know it was a bit of a deep dive here. If, if you're just show only, that might have, uh, whoop, right over your head. But 
the fact that they said Meraxes jumped off the the script to me. I said, "Whoa, Meraxes! That, that 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 dragon died out of King's Landing." But anyway, that's that's the whole situation. But anyway, back to the recap. Uh, Viserys says the last dragon was small and weak, and the handmaiden um, says something along the lines of what happened to the skulls, right? Mm-hmm. And Viserys like kind of flippantly was like, "I don't know. I guess Robert probably had them destroyed." Which, by the way, he did not. Not at all. He just moved them down. He did not destroy any of them. So stop slandering the good name of King Bobby B. Uh, and the handmaiden says, that's very sad. Series goes nuts. <laughs> <laughs> they, they actually were having a bit of a human moment in connection fair from it. They were essentially using this dragon history that he'd been quizzed on by his father as a kind of foreplay and pillow talk, and it's kind of working for them. And he's just incapable of having a human moment for more than like 30 seconds at a time. Well, I think it also, he doesn't, he doesn't like addressing the weakness of the Targaryen family at this point, right? He doesn't like addressing the fact that like, yeah, well, he probably destroyed them. And yes, that's sad. And yes, I'm out of power. And yes, my family has pretty much been obliterated. I can see how you probably don't want to be addressing that right before, uh, you know, uh, the the good time. Um, but he does. And then he, of course, in typical of serious fashion, he goes nuts. And he, he he's too mean to her. He calls her a pretty little idiot. Uh, but he still makes her keep uh, what I'm going to call working. <laughs> Uh, he also reveals what she was that he'd specifically hired her, which I don't think we knew that before. That uh, from her perspective, she was specifically hired to train Danny to be a better lover, which is actually rather clever on Viserys's part, honestly. That he kind of plotted that out. Well, he knew that she wouldn't be right. I mean, I think she's a virgin, right? When she's married off to Cal Drogo, she has no experience. Yeah. Um, but come on, and credit where it's due. That's actually a, a bit of foresight for what Danny would need to be prepared for when the time came. And it worked. It does work. Um, but anyway, we go to King's Land. Any more about this? About uh, this thing? And of course, he immediately didn't distance himself from his one successful theory to say, "I didn't hire you to make her a better lover. I hired you to please me." And then, as you said forces her to work which just makes what just uh, for a very awkward exit to a scene to go to king's landing so cringy Ugh, i didn't really like that scene at all but i uh, but it does introduce a lot of the lore from the books which is kind of cool but it's just a awkward weird scene mm-hmm. anyway we cut to king's landing and septa mordain which is uh the septa that um you know, supports the Starks that went down with the Starks to King's Landing is walking uh, through the th- throne room, uh, empty throne room with Sansa. And Septa Mordain is talking about the children Sansa will have with Joffrey. And Sansa <laughs> seems very concerned that she may not bear him a boy. Yeah. Uh, and that people will hate her for it. Uh, Sansa then references Jane Poole's mother, which <laughs> it's so it's so funny. You know, sorry, t- uh, show only people. I know we're, we're going deep in the books, but it's so funny to me how they did not know in the show what they were going to write out from the books. They, they were so, because the, they were so intent yeah, they, to keep close to the books early on. They're referencing Greyjoy uncles. They're referencing Jane Poole. They were fit. They were ready. They were to get it done. Jane Poole, quick primer, is the person who actually was married off to Ramsay Bolton. In the show, Sansa is in season, I believe, four or five. Mm-hmm. And it's in the books, it's actually Jane Poole who is uh, being masqueraded and, and pretending to be Arya Stark. So they reference Jane Poole here. So they clearly weren't planning on you know, writing Jane Poole out of the show, but they actually do later. Uh, and Sansa's referencing the fact that Jane Poole's mother only had five children, all girls. And Sansa seems to think that the people uh, of, of King's Landing and the Lannisters, et cetera, would hate her if she doesn't bear Joffrey a boy. So she's way down the line here. I mean, <laughs> you are, Sansa is 
cart before the horse, like five carts before the horse is where she's at right now. Yeah. Uh, and and Septimordain tries to uh, comfort her and says, no one could ever hate you. And then Sansa somewhat uh, astutely says Joffrey does. It seems like even as she's saying this, Sansa is realizing, oh shit, there's a bit of a problem here. The guy I'm going to have the babies with kind of vaguely hates me and never wants to see me again. Hmm. It's like she, like she only really realizes this about halfway through the conversation that her own putting the cart before the horse is that. Uh, last little bit of history um, for people who don't know. Jane Poole is uh, Sansa's best friend. She's also the daughter of the steward of House Stark. Yep, yep. Um, then Septa uh, Mordain says, well, let's change the subject. So she starts quizzing Trivia. Sansa. Yeah, you ready for these? Uh, I got... you, did you write them down? Sure did. Oh, God. What are they? Who built the Iron Throne? Uh, that would be uh, Aegon the Conqueror. Who built the Red Keep? Uh, that would be Magor, wasn't it? Magor the Cruel. How many years did it take? Oh, I don't think she answered that one. She didn't. Uh, Sansa cuts her off and says, my, my, my grandfather and uncle were killed here, weren't they? Um, and... She has this back and forth with uh, the Septa, and Samsa, she's being ridiculous here. She's uh, she's throwing shade at her own father, um, and I think that the scene is meant to show that she still clearly holds it against Eddard that he killed Lady. Yeah, very much so. And Mordain directly even confronts her on it, is that you are going to need to find it in your heart to forgive him. It's just a basic requirement of the fact that you two are going to be close and be related to each other. You can't avoid each other going forward, but Sansa is just not mature enough to be able to accept that point this quickly. No. So uh, we cut from that. We're still in King's Landing. The small council is getting updated by the commander of the City Watch. This is the police force um, that keeps the peace in King's Landing, and his name is Janos Slint. He comes into the story uh, again in later seasons. And Ned orders Littlefinger uh, to find more money to keep the peace. He basically says, hey, look, if we can afford this big, ridiculous tournament, we can afford enough money to keep the king's peace, which is a very cogent point. But then Ned goes a step too far, which he typically does, and he says, I'll give you 20 of my men to help keep the peace. Ned, a little bit of advice here from your boy, uh, your boy Lee. You might want to keep your men close. You might want to keep your men close. And the council's legitimately impressed by his decisiveness here. This is the kind of quick decision, quick, responsible, well-thought-out decision that Robert would just never be capable of. And it's also just showing that, as you said, it ultimately does not work out well for him, but his willingness to invest his own resources, his own effort in terms of helping the people of what he now views as his kingdom is commendable. And the council looks legitimately shocked that he's just making these kind of decisive decisions so quickly. It shows great leadership. It does not show... Uh... As our uh, former president would say, strategery. <laughs> okay, he can't know that now, but yes, wonderful reference there. <laughs> Ned seems completely miserable, and the actor Sean Bean plays this so well because it's a it's a mixture of like I don't want to be here, I'm tired, all you people disgust me. Also, it's hot. Like he's always <laughs> kind of like, damn it, it's hot. Like, <laughs> uh, and then Vary says the tournament. Tourney, tourney will uplift the people, my lord. This is a big thing. And then Littlefinger says, oh, it's good for the economy. And Ned's like, that's great. And he gets up and leaves. <laughs> calls, Ned to the, <laughs> calls Ned to the council. But uh, wants to have a couple words with Pycelle before he walks out of the room. He does indeed. He asks Pycelle's about, uh, uh, Grandmaster Pycelle about John Aaron. Uh, Pycelle says that John Aaron cared for him. Um, 
but the sickness hit him hard. Or that Picel said he cared for John Aaron. Sorry, he, he did all he could for him, but the sickness hit him hard and fast. And Picel explains that the night before he died, uh, John Aaron had come to him asking about a book. Uh, the name of the book is The Lineages and History of the Great Houses of the Seven Kingdoms. Ned takes um, the book, but not before, before doing so, flips through it and reads a little bit. And what we know is that this actually is a book that has descriptions of many high lords and ladies of Westeros and their children. Um, and it's it, not just a description, uh, which we, we learned, it's not just a description of like, okay, this is somebody's son or this is somebody's daughter. When Ned's looking at the section on the umbers, uh, it's noteworthy that he actually calls out physical descriptions of people. So this book doesn't just say, hey, Spencer, you had a kid. His name was John. It says you had a kid named with John, four foot tall, black of hair, you know, that sort of thing. It's, That's what this book does. It, it's a pretty, it sounds kind of dull, but it's an impressive work. This thing's pretty amazing that they kind of compiled this over the course of generations with this kind of level of detail in a world before, you know, like cars, you can go and see them or video or anything else like that. This is but a, it's also realistic, right? Because all the great houses have maesters. And go. so as people are born, as they grow up, they send a raven back to the citadel. Boom, boom, boom. We jot it down. We have a record. It, it's, it sounds like it's a kind of living, breathing tomb. It kind of makes me wonder, is this book still being regularly updated? Or did it have a publication date sometime after uh, Robert and his children were born? I think it's still being updated. Um, but anyway, Ned takes it. Um and Picel tells Ned that John's last words, so John basically is like, or not John, uh, <laughs> Ed, this is a little bit of Freudian stuff there. Um, uh, tells, Picel tells, uh, so Ed is asking Picel what is his last words, and Picel kind of dismisses him. He's like, I don't know, people's last words, it doesn't mean anything. And Ed's like, uh, Ned's like, no, seriously, tell me. And the last words were, the seed is strong. And, you know, it's an interesting thing here, because Pycelle is very obviously trying to deflect Ned off the right path. Because as we know later on, Pycelle knows exactly what happened, exactly what's going on. Pretty close, at least. And is trying to continually direct Ned in the wrong direction. He's not wrong about a lot of his points, though. I mean, like, he is honestly correct that last words usually mean absolutely nothing. Except here, apparently. Uh, he's well, he does a good job of misleading without lying. Yeah, I mean, he's... The best kind of misleading, the best kind of lies are the ones that include a certain grain of truth to them. And Pycelle's sticking to that theory hard. He's also correct when he's directing a certain amount of blame to Varys. He doesn't actually know this, but Varys is actually deserving a fair amount of blame for some of the things that are going to happen later on. Eh, at least in the books. And then uh, Ned kind of suggests that um, John Aaron might have been poisoned. Mm -hmm. uh, and Pycelle just completely blows him off. <laughs> Yeah, very says, uh, yeah, poison. Uh, it's the work of women, cravens, and eunuchs. And then Pycelle just goes in on Varys yeah. and says, you know, Varys is a eunuch. <laughs> Ned's like, yeah, everyone knows that. Like, just shut up. And then he just leaves. He's had enough. He doesn't want to hear Pycelle just do his little petty uh, shade throwing at Varys. I, I love Ned's dismissiveness to Pycelle throughout the scene. Like, he says the end of where he says, you know, Lord Varys is a eunuch. And Ned very flippantly says, everyone knows that. Or earlier. When, and then he just leaves. Yeah. Abruptly. At, yeah. Or earlier when uh, Pycelle kind of proudly says that, you know, John Aaron came to him many times to seek my guidance. To which Ned's immediate response is, why? <laughs> I love how prickly Pycelle... I love how prickly Pycelle gets the response to that. And Ned immediately cushions it and says, no, why was he coming to you for advice on this? 
But it, yeah, now it is funny though because like you would think that Ned would have a bit of reverence for Pycelle. He's the Grand Maester, right? But he doesn't. He just eh, just dismisses him entirely. Yeah, I mean, Ned, as you pointed, Ned is having a rough day. I, I love one of the quotes at the very start of this, where Janos Slint refers to it as a hands tournament, and Ned can't even tolerate that. He's just so unhappy with the situation. He says something. Yeah, along... he says something. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. No, go no, ahead. Please, what you got? <laughs> uh, he says something along the lines, right, of like they can call it my tournament, doesn't make it so. It, it's a, he is. So, I love your reference to him being hot because he's still wearing all of his northern leathers and everything else, just because he's just so starky he can't even abandon the attire but i it's just a further reference of just how very uncomfortable and unpleasant he finds all of this but honor bound man as he is he's sticking to it now he's investigating what how his uh, friend and father figure ultimately died isn't it a bit of a flip though from the from the like um mance raider telling stannis you're not dressed for this weather (laughs) like ned you're not dressed for this weather (laughs) All right, well, then we cut to uh, Ned comes in to see Arya, and Arya is practicing balancing. This is a cute scene. Um, uh, you know, first season Arya, we talked about it. We'll probably talk about it every episode, except for probably episode nine. <laughs> um, she's so cute and so funny and so believable. It's some of the best acting that Maisie Williams does in the entire series, and I think it's probably by accident. I don't think that she's just some grand thespian at that age. I think <laughs> they just did great casting and gave her great lines, and she just nailed it. Mm-hmm. Um but I think this scene is supposed to show that clear, clearly Arya is talk, taking to her training. Uh, and it was a really solid move by Ned to give her some training. And she says she's going to be chasing cats the next day. <laughs> Very proudly. I'm, tomorrow I'm chasing cats. I, I loved how humored Ned is by all this, too. Is that he's immediately just, oh, you're chasing cats. Cool. He's just he's <laughs> trying to engage. He's trying to follow this. And he clearly is really happy and amused that this idea of his, as compared to the doll he got from Sansa, is really working out well. Yeah, and you know, Ned is the type of guy who's he's one of these parents that's going to tell you I don't have a favorite. Ned's got a favorite. So obviously, <laughs> it's so apparent on his face when they're in the scenes together. Yeah, and that's what like, and I'll I'll cover this in in probably later this episode, but then also um, later episode uh, of uh, reviews of season one is that I think a lot of what Sansa like her sort of memories of Ned in that we get a lot in season seven. Um is a little rose-colored glasses because they didn't really get along or connect all that well. No, as, they, as becomes pretty apparent, based on the nature of who Sansa is and how she likes to carry herself, she clearly was taking more after Catelyn and then just decided to go just up to a factor of 11 with respect to what she viewed a Southern lady should be. Right. Well, then um, Arya, you know, she has heard the news that Bran has woken up, so she asks if Bran is coming to stay with him. And, uh, you know, Ned kind of gives her an evasive answer. He says, well, he's strong enough to, you know, get here or whatever. And then Arya says, well, now he can't fulfill his dream of being a knight of the Kingsguard. And he says, well, he can do other things. You know, he could be a, a lord of a castle. And then Ned goes on, which is <laughs> a little bit of ham-handed um, tone deafness here. And he suggests that Arya could be a lady with a bunch of kids one day. And Arya just gives him this look like he just spoke Cantonese, right? And he just goes... <laughs> No, that's not me. That's a great line. And Ned already knows it. He already knows it. And he just smiles and seems proud. And I'm sure as anything I am in this in this series that he sees uh, his sister and Arya in that moment. He sees it and he clearly seems to support it. I mean, he, as you said, it's kind of tone deaf. He clearly wasn't thinking for a moment. But the moment Arya confronts him on it, he immediately accepts it. He doesn't leave this scene discomforted or corrected. He just smiles as he, get, as he gets up and goes. 
he clearly doesn't always get her, but he loves her dearly, just as he said that he loved his sister. Yeah, yeah. Arya is the favorite, no doubt. Anything else we want to cover from King's Landing? Uh, no, it, it's, it's a great collection of scene. I just love that it ends with a sweet moment between Ned and Arya. Because as you said, the two work just so naturally well together. The actors and characters. Agreed. Agreed. Great scene. And then we cut to the wall. We're at the top of the wall. And Sam is up there, and he, he walks up to John. Um, and it's clear that Sir Alistair has made Sam uh, John's new watch partner. Uh, and John's like, come closer. And Sam's like, oh, I'm okay. And he goes, no, you're not. You're freezing. Come over here. Like, <laughs> dude, come on. It's cold up here. Get near the fire. So he does. And Sam apologizes for having bad eyesight. <laughs> uh. And it's clear, it's clear that Sam is intimidated by John, but he, he, ha- he has a warmness to him because John was one of the only people that we see that's been kind to him so far at the wall. Mm-hmm. And John kind of drops a truth bomb here and just goes, you can't fight. You can't see. You're afraid of heights and everything else, probably. What are you doing here? There's it, it, almost like a certain element of resentment in this, too, because John feels to a certain degree that he's shackled his horse next to this guy who just is never going to meet any of the standards that the Night's Watch judges people by. He's kind of confronting him with, okay, I've tied myself to you. What the fuck are you doing here? Why am I do? Why are you doing this? And and I think, hmm. yeah, I think of all the potential answers Sam could have given, the answer that he gives blows John back and endears uh, Sam to John. Oh yeah, because Sam explains that on his 18th name day, his father told him he'd take the black, uh, or else they'd go on a hunt, uh, and Sam wouldn't come back from the hunt. And then his father tells him, this is Lord Randall Tarley tells him, also, I'll tell your mother, nothing would please me more. So he tells his own son, you take the black or I'll have you killed and I can't wait to tell your mom you're dead. We Ooh. we see a lot of cold people in this show. And, you know, we've respect, we respected Randall Tarley quite a bit in season six and seven. But this is a level of stone cold that's almost impressive, even for this setting. It's tough, but you can tell that that explanation breaks John a little bit because you say anything you want to about John being hard-headed, being like a Stark, being hot-blooded. He is empathetic, and when he hears this, he he clearly has empathy for for uh, Sam, and he just kind of smiles. And John concedes that uh, to Sam that it wouldn't get any better, um, but he tells him you probably can't get any worse. So <laughs> yeah, you're gonna have to fight tomorrow. You're gonna suck, but you know you got a good baseline to work from. Yeah, you can't get any worse. It, and then the end of that scene. Is, there are certain moments on this show, and countless shows, because it seems like for, for the entire fantasy genre on what's portrayed on television, nobody ever wears hats regardless of how appropriate hats would be. There are several moments on the wall that I just want to reach into the television and just put toboggans on these people, because, God, they must be cold. Man, so I feel like if, you, if you're in Westeros, or you're in the North, and you create, you know those big Russian fur hats? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that'd be perfect. If you created the IP for that, you'd be like Amazon of the North. Oh yeah, if you said everyone would need one. If you, if you set up a distribution <laughs> unit in the city of White Harbor and just start marketing those throughout the North, just watch the money roll in. Because apparently the hat concept has not yet been popular in the North, <laughs> or even earmuffs. Good <laughs> lord! But anyway, <laughs> that, that is what it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's a, another scene that gives you some background on Sam, but endears John, uh, Sam to John even more. Mm-hmm. Cut down to King's Landing. Um, and Ned and Littlefinger are walking through what looks like an extensive series of gardens. 
And Littlefinger explains that John Aaron's squire, Sir Hugh, was knighted immediately after John's death. Mm, a little suspicious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Littlefinger starts pointing out all the spies they are walking by. It's a real power move, real alpha move here by Littlefinger. <laughs> he works for um, him. She works for him. He's clearly trying to just impress Ned with the scope of his abilities and knowledge. Big boy. And, and here's my thing. If Ned believes Littlefinger... He should absolutely know that he's in over his head. Yeah. Because he there's he he has no he doesn't know any of this. He doesn't even know they're spies. And not only does Littlefinger know they're spies, he knows exactly who they're working for. And he's able to craft the conversation and, and say certain things in front of certain ones in such a way so as not tip his hand to the spies that are around him. Mean, if Ned believes this, at this point I would bolt. I'd be the hell out of there. Oh, you, you know Ned, he's too loyal and determined for that. But as you say, if he hadn't already realized realized how utterly unprepared he is for this position. This scene should have made it abundantly clear. Yeah, and then Littlefinger tells Ned that John Aaron had visited a blacksmith a few times uh, before his death, and he clearly a little breadcrumbs trying to lead Ned, get, get Ned to that blacksmith. It, um, go ahead. What I find fascinating on this scene is that you know, Littlefinger and um, and Pycelle are both power brokers in their own way, of both pretty impressive abilities in their own way they both have completely opposite goals in the things that they're telling ned for this scene for pycelle is trying to put the kibosh on this because he doesn't want ned to be investigating it further meanwhile littlefinger is directly feeding ned so that he keeps going into this deeper because he here's one of the questions i want to ask you is littlefinger well is this further an example of littlefinger trying to destabilize the realm through little bits of accurate and misleading information threaded together so that people continually start to move closer to conflict. I think that this is him trying to position Ned against the Lannisters. And he's got to give Ned enough that Ned starts to question the parentage of Cersei's three children. Because if he gets him there, then that's the sharp divide that regardless of if King King Bobby B lives or dies, will pit the Lannisters against the Starks. The question I practically have, why is he directing Ned to Sir Hugh of the Vale? Because you and I seemingly know, from what we later learn about how John Aaron actually died, that Sir Hugh seems actually innocent of any crime. He didn't really seem to have done anything. But Littlefinger's trying to, in some ways, cast a certain degree of suspicion on him. What's his goal there? Because he's, my opinion, what he's doing is he's still, he's trying to create suspicion around the events of John Heron's death. And by explaining that Sir Hugh was knighted immediately after John's death, well, then that puts a little kernel in Ned's uh, head. Oh, well, did Sir Hugh have something to do with this, right? Like he's just spinning out all of these conspiracies to Ned to to get Ned to say, okay, this wasn't an accident. I need to figure out what happened. I agree. And I also think in some ways it makes all of Littlefinger's shenanigans more successful if he actually provides Ned with some information that doesn't result in a further tidbit that further uncovers the mystery. If it looks good on paper but ultimately proves to be a dead end, in some ways that makes his information look all the more realistic rather than something that's so clearly plotted out. So I think it's rather clever on Littlefinger's part to kind of give Ned some information that he knows is false just to make everything else look a little bit more accurate. Agreed. Yet another example of a character that in season one is developed and really well done, and in season seven is not. And I utterly adore the little exchange that they have at the end of this scene. Uh, uh, did you write down the quote? Because I think I've got it here in my notes, too. Uh, I sure do. Tell us, sir. What do we got? 
Uh, Ned says something along the lines of uh, either apologizing or saying like, he couldn't believe he, did, he didn't trust Littlefinger upon arriving at the city. And Littlefinger says, distrusting me is the wisest thing you've done since you got off your horse. A lovely line and very, very accurate. Littlefinger is clearly an individual that to a certain degree cat-like likes to play with his prey before he actually goes in for the kill. Hmm. Very poetic there, Spencer. I like that. Mm-hmm. So then Jory, uh, he is at the tourney grounds, and Sir Hugh of the Vale is counting off steps at the jousting <laughs> Such arena. A dick. And Sir Hugh basically wouldn't talk to him because he's not a knight. Uh, come on, man. You were a knight for 15 seconds. Yeah, and he is proud of it. And I, I, I actually really enjoy all of little Jory's scenes throughout this episode. Which the show does a very good job of giving us the perspectives of lower class characters trying to interact with nobility. And I just continually feel bad for Jorius. He's doing his best to be the captain of Ned's guard, fulfill the missions that he set out. And just like Ned, he's not equipped to deal with this very, very rigidly chivalric medieval world that is playing out in the South. Agreed. I do like Jory. Uh, He kind of steals the scenes. Well, anyway, we we cut back to Jory uh, with Ned. And I can't remember what Jory says, but he says something along the lines of, there's a lot of knights here or something like that. And Ned basically dismisses Southern knights. Like he he clearly, like the fact that you say you're a knight from the South does not do shit for him. This is kind of like, all right, whoop, back out to the NBA. Uh, Spencer, ride the bench for a second. Mm-hmm. This is kind of like uh, if you say, look, hey, I'm an all-star. And you go, really? And you say, yeah, I'm an all-star from the East. Doesn't mean much. <laughs> Doesn't mean much to me. Oh, yeah. You're a, you're a reserve point guard for the Pacers? Great. Uh, awesome. Like it, That's kind of how Ned sees it. He's like, this is the B team down here. Like He doesn't, he doesn't care. But uh, Ned is going after that little colonel that Littlefinger left for him, and he is visiting a blacksmith down in Flea Bottom. And the owner explains um, that John, when he would visit the blacksmith, John Aaron, just wanted to see the boy. Uh, the boy, Gendry, goes up to Ned. And the, the, the owner uh, instructs Gendry to show him his helmet. Because clearly this helmet that Gendry has made is, is really fine craftsman work. And Ned compliments it. And Gendry, to his credit, he's got that King Bobby blood, uh, King Bobby B blood in him, Spencer. He says, it's not for sale. <laughs> I, I love the Arbor's meet reaction to this. Is, oh, fuck. Okay, sorry, sorry. He's a kid. Uh, don't, don't pay any attention to him. Everything's fine. Because he's clearly worried that if Ned was any other Southern Lord, there might be hell to pay from this kind of impishness in front of him. I, yeah, but Gendry didn't back off of it. He said, oh, this, I made it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, Ned, I think actually that endears, uh, Gendry to him. And he says, I don't need to apologize. There's nothing to forgive. And he says, what did John Aaron want with you? And he said, well, he really just asked me about my mother, who she was, what she looked like. Uh, Gendry explained that his mother died when he was little and had yellow hair. Ned looks at him, seems to have a bit of a revelation. And then as he's leaving, he says this quote, if the day ever comes that the boy would rather wield a sword instead of forge one, he has sent him to me. Now, this is really great because you can draw the parallel to season seven, right? When Gintry finally does pick up the sword, yeah. he finally does go to battle. Who does he go to? Ned's heir. John. Yeah. Exactly. He goes to John. So this is further establishing that John really is Ned's heir, and he he takes up that mantle. Mm-hmm. And when Gintry does finally decide, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this up. I'm gonna go. He's linked up with a Stark again. I like that he even references if you'd rather swing a ham, if you'd rather wield a hammer rather than swing one or something along those lines. He's even just already putting him in uh, Robert's role at that point. 
Right. Um, and, uh, yeah. Uh, then Ned, uh, they, they go back to their horses and Ned tells Jory that Gendry is King Robert's bastard son. Which he admits in the open street. <laughs> just, come on, Ned. You just walked out into public. People are walking past you and you just said, oh, bastard of the king right in there at normal speaking volume, too. And it's not like, I mean, the people are going to be looking at you, Ned. Like, you're, <laughs> you're not inconspicuous, dude. Like, you're the king. It, it, it makes for a great scene. I, I love the kind of look of shock recognition that's in Ned's face. I even love that there's, you know, the nature of just how dense these books are. This armor has a name. He has a character. He has a fascinating backstory that we might go into in book nerd bitching. And this is basically the only scene we ever see of him. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Anything else on that before we cut to another King's Landing scene? Uh, actually, I'm kind, of, kind of struggling to remember. Where are we going next? Jamie is outside of the King's Chambers, and the King seems to be enjoying himself. Uh, he's got a few visitors. Uh, got a few visitors, and uh, Jamie looks to be in a crap mood. <laughs> and Jory walks up to Jamie. He has a note for the King uh, from Ned. We don't know what that is. Uh, and Jamie makes Jory listen. He says, oh, stop. How many do you think are in there with him? Jory's like, you know, he's like the guy who's like, he walks up, he's in a fair, and he walks up to his booth, and you're like, how many jelly beans are in there? And you're like, I don't know, 400. Like, he just kind of guesses, like, eh, three or four, I don't know. Uh, Jamie says no, but he doesn't elaborate on how many are in there, which kind of annoyed me. I, I was hoping know. for a tally. Yeah, we see what. Uh, yeah, I, I got to peg the over-under at nine. <laughs> that many. I mean, we see, what, four or five leave just while the two of them are standing there? And there's still plenty in there. Oh, so yeah. I got I got the over under at nine. And Jamie explains that the King likes to do this when he's on duty. Now, I tend to think that this is Jamie uh, with a little bit of um, flattering himself, mm-hmm. a little bit of an ego. I'm guessing that the King doesn't not do this <laughs> when other people are on duty. Uh, it's not like he only does this when Jamie's on duty. This is Robert Baratheon we're talking about. He'd do this while Barristan Selmy was in the fucking room. There's <laughs> there's nothing that's going to stop his whoremongering. It's just who he is. And Jamie continues the pity party, saying, oh, he makes me listen as he insults my sister. And Jory aptly changed the subject and says, Jamie, we've met before. At the Siege of Pike, and Jamie softens a bit, which is right in character for him, because as soon as he figures out you're a soldier, you fought in battle, mm-hmm. he has a little bit more respect for you. And Jamie says, that was a proper battle. And they re- this is the first reference, I believe, of Thoros of Mir charging through the breach with his flaming sword at Pike. Oh, yeah. I, I love Jamie. how Jamie's memory just clicks when it comes to combat, because he even starts to start remembering little details, like, oh, right, that's where you got your injury to your eye, isn't it? He yep. hasn't seen no, this I mean, guy in like, tw- like what is it, 10 years at least? But he starts remembering the details right then and there once he starts tying it to combat. And they both kind of have that sort of like connecting, laughing, nostalgic moment of Thoros Samir being a crazy person. Um, and then um, Jory says, I saw the Grey- Greyjoy boy at Winterfell. Or no, no, sorry. Uh, Jamie says this to Jory. Mm-hmm. He says, I saw the Greyjoy boy at Winterfell. It's like a shark on a mountaintop. <laughs> Pretty funny line. Yeah. And Jory says, Theon, he's a good lad. Jamie says, I doubt it. Yeah. Great <laughs> Peak line. Jamie. Wonderful. Peak line. Jamie. Yeah. <laughs> I doubt it. Uh, and Jory says, well, can I at least leave this here for you? And Jamie's like, hell no, I'm, I don't serve Lord Stark, and I'm not a courier. I'm not taking it. And Jory kind of looks a little disappointed and walks away. I like, what, do you, what do you make of Jamie's reaction as Jory walks away? I almost think he looks like he kind of feels bad that he just brushed him off. Because he clearly just... He does. 
he clearly seems to sink into himself after he sends him off. It even looks a little bit after him like, why was I a dick there? Come on. Yeah, it's, it's interesting act, uh, acting from Nicolai Costa-Waldo. Like he, he clearly was given instructions or he read into the script that he does have respect for Jory. They fought together. He knows Jory is a, is a he, he can battle. He's a warrior. Mm-hmm. Um, but his pride wouldn't allow him to just kind of be a bro and like take the message. Yeah. And, uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with his disdain for Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon and not necessarily Jory. Mm-hmm. And this scene, it's a great scene, and it becomes all the more tragic, what, two episodes from now? Whereas, we well know, Jamie's going to be the one that drives a blade through Jory's eye. Yeah, but he was, yeah, we'll get to that, but that was just blind rage, Jamie. Oh, um, yeah. Anything else on King's Landing before we move? Uh, no, I think we've wrapped it up well. Again, so, I've got to comment again, how wonderfully well done each of these scenes are. Even just the transitions tying to them, for, for each of these scenes... You get a reference to what the next scene is going to be when they're tending, when, when they're ending out. They just have very natural transitions like that as they go. Yeah, very good. And then we cut to the wall, and they're all eating, uh, and John walks in, and Pip and Grin, who I love these two. Like I, I just wish that there could be like a you know how we have Duncan Egg, <laughs> the Pip and Grin show. Yeah, like a little buddy comedy with Pip and Grin at the wall. I would totally watch that. Oh, yeah. All the scenes that John wasn't in of the two of them just hanging out. Maybe that's one of the prequels that's uh, in development. Who knows? I'd be down. A little half-hour comedy on CBS. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, God, CBS. We're going broadcast at this point. Yeah, yeah. It'll be the lead-in for the Big Bang Theory. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> but Pip and Grin start making fun of Sam. And to me, it seems lighthearted. I don't think that they are ill-intended here, but Sam's, or John snaps, and I think... It's part because John is an empathetic guy, but I think it also uh, connecting to that conversation he had on the wall. And he says, Sam's no different than the rest of us. There's no place for him in the world, so he's come here. And John says they're not to hurt Sam anymore. And Ras challenges that, and John just stares at him. Now, Spencer, I'm going to get through the recap, and then I'm going to explain to the audience uh, a conversation that me and you had uh, when you were visiting over New Year's. Mm-hmm. We can have a few minutes on this, but let's not do the full like, three hours that we, <laughs> we did. We talked for like three so, hours just ranting at each other. So, later that night, Rast is sleeping. And by the way, the barracks that these guys sleep in looks like, I mean, that's garbage. They are like shoulder to shoulder. And maybe that's just to keep warm, but oh, it seems awful. Mm. Uh, but Rast is sleeping and John walks in, he gags him, he's got Pip and Grin with him, uh, and Ghost just snarls over top of him and John simply says, no one touches Sam. The next day, Rast is uh, with out in the courtyard with Sam, with Pip, Grin, uh, John and Alistair Thorne. Alistair Thorne tells Sam, uh, Rast to start sparring with Sam and he won't hit him. Uh, Sam tries to hit Rast and, and Rast just dismisses his blade. Uh, and then barely touches him at one point. Thorne gets pissed, uh, puts in Grin, uh, and Grin says, hit me, hit me. <laughs> Sam touches Grin, and he does his best. Grin right here, I don't know, Spencer, are you a soccer fan? But he does his best Neymar impression. Like, he just I get that one. falls down, grabbing the leg. Oh, oh, I yield, I yield, oh. I'm blinded, red card, please. <laughs> Such a flop, such a Neymar situation. Uh, and then everyone laughs. Thorne throws into a rage, immediately knows this is John doing, and then bellows when you're out there, beyond the wall with the sun going down. Do you want a man at your back or a sniveling boy? And I get Thorne's point here. If you are out and you are part of a, a military force, a militia, whatever, and you are in the, uh, you know, in the tough conditions or you're in a battle, you want somebody who can... Uh, thin for theirself, but my thought here is that Thorn is 
he only knows what he knows, and that is rangy. Right. But there are other ways the Night's Watchman can be valuable to the Watch, even if they can't fight. And it's weird that Thorne doesn't think of that, because everyone knows of Maester Aemon. Maester Aemon could never fight. Well, But he provided something to the Night's Watch. Now, hold, hold on, Spencer. Uh, you know what I'm going to say. We've had the conversation already. Over New Year's, which if you listen to Whiskey on the Weekends, we, we well chronicled our New Year's events. Spencer came. He stayed with me for a while. It was a lot of fun. But we kind of started talking about this pod. You know, what were our major themes and, you know, stuff about this episode, right? And Spencer and I got into a very heated back and forth. <laughs> and very heated is an understatement about what John is doing here. Because he's undercutting the system. He's undercutting Alistair Thorne. And is that okay or is it not? Spencer, I'm looking at the clock here. You're going to set a time can limit you, here? Do, court court can rules? You do, can you do two minutes about your position on what John did uh, to to ensure that the other guys don't hurt Sam. One degree of lead-in before the two minutes start. I just want to point out, before we had this three-hour talk, you got me so drunk that when we tried to watch the episode, my notes at times certain just kind of wrote in, I've got copies of them, Littlefinger says thing, write it in later. That's how that drunk so I was fun. having this talk. We we did. We tied one on, and as we were wont to do at the end of the night, we throw on Game of Thrones, and I'm like, hey, man, why don't you just do your 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 notes? And you were game, and you grabbed them. And I could tell you weren't doing well. I asked you the next morning, and you're like, yeah, those are garbage. Like, that doesn't. <laughs> Nothing of value. We still anything. Okay. But, I mean. All right. Go. Your position on the actions that John took to protect Sam. Two minutes. Fire away. Okay. John is doing what he usually does in terms of doing what he feels is the morally right thing. And as per usual, John is doing this in the most brusque way possible that is showing no respect for traditions, the expectations, or even the perspectives of those around him. He's absolutely certain that he's right, and his goal, his way of doing that is through, as talked about, either threats of physical violence, of literally he's threatening to have Rast killed, which is not necessarily the way to engender loyalty later on, or directly undermining the command structure of a military organization, of where that simply can't happen. This is an organization which, as pointed out by several other people, is run on a collection of cutthroats and murderers and rapists that are submitting to the authority of an established military, practically monastic order. They follow orders, or they don't, or in the event they don't, it goes to chaos, as we see later on when a rebellion occurs. The degree to which this authority is maintained is the degree to which this organization survives and thrives. When Alistair Thorne is a dick, he's a horrible teacher, but he's not wrong in terms of his views of what the minimum expectations of these recruits are. When he expresses his point, everyone in the room, from Pip to John, all kind of shrug and go, well, fuck, he's kind of right. Because, as we see when Sam goes north of the wall, regardless of where you're ultimately assigned, there are base abilities of what is expected of you. Anyone can apparently be sent north of the wall under certain circumstances. And so there is a basic level of training, a basic levels of skills that everyone must be capable of because they're never sure what you will demand of you as time goes on. So John's trying to do the morally right thing, but in directly undermining Thorne's authority of public and also subverting the basic needs that the organization expects in terms of how it judges recruits and what it needs of recruits, he's instowing damage to the organization and in many ways foreshadowing how the organization itself will violently react to his inability to actually use a certain degree of nuance to bring about the moral actions he feels are necessary. Okay, I think you got that in under two minutes. I tried. <clears throat> I will counterpoint. Please. 
Uh, my counterpoint is um, the Night's Watch, you call it a military organization. Uh, I guess you can call it that, but it, it's also a uh, what needs to be a self-sufficient organization. And that means you need people who are good at other things, who are good at cooking, who are good at teaching, learning, collecting knowledge, uh, communicating, trading ravens. There's a lot of things that Sam could potentially add value to the Night's Watch, uh, not going north of the wall and not fighting. Now, I understand that, you you know, in this organization, you're likely going to want Sam to have some base level of abilities. This is his second day. It's his second day. And Alistair Thorne is not trying to teach him. He's just having him get the shit kicked out of him. He's not saying, hey, put your shield up, do this, do that. He's not doing any of that. So he's not, he's just being a bully and it's not effective. And so what I think is going on here, it's a failure of leadership. And it's not a failure of leadership for Alistair Thorne because he doesn't know any better. It's Jorah Mormont. Joria Mormont should be watching over Alistair Thorne and stop him from doing things like this because if the goal is to train Sam to be an effective fighter, the way that he's going about it is ridiculous. Uh, and it's, it's not just cruel, it's ineffective. And so John takes matters into his own hand as he is wont to do because he's a natural leader. I like that he did it. Now, is it always a good idea to take these matters into your own hands? Of course not. But this one, it was so obvious that what Alistair Thorne was doing was wrong. And I also like it from a sort of like looking forward perspective, because it does establish to everybody there that John John sees what's going on, and he will take he will he will ensure that that um, people who deserve to be taken care of are, and people who are pricks get handled, and that's exactly what he did. Sam deserved a break. It's his second day. Guy can't fight. He's never learned to fight. Give him a break. John didn't. I, nowhere in this scene did I see John say. Sam never has to learn to fight. But he did say, tomorrow, you're not just going to beat him up mindlessly because that does nothing. And so that's the battle that me and Spencer had. We went back and forth. At one point, Spencer, I think I, may, I threatened to punch you. I don't know. I can't remember. We were in our cups. Uh, didn't mean it, of course. Of course, I would never <laughs> physically <laughs> attack you. But uh, we did get very heated about this point. I think that we have laid out our two positions. Uh, you didn't convince me. I didn't convince you. Uh, I think that's where we landed, right? Sure. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, you you uh you can tell me, but I think that we landed on uh just yelling at each other and then uh and I think actually get, you know what? I think that right then I'm going to I'm going to pat ourselves on the back here, Spencer. We were so much more cogent just then than we were that night. <laughs> We had three hours of just going in circles. We were just repeating the same damn points again, just louder. <laughs> but it is, a, you know, it is interesting because I, I do think that there's there's two sides to that. It's great writing on George R. R. Martin's part because you can see why John did it, but you can also see why it could be potentially problematic for an organization like the Night's Watch. And I, I would offer, I fully agree with your points. I think they're in some ways undermined, though, just by the fact that if John had then taken the opportunity to train Sam on his own terms, just you know, the organization wasn't going to do it, so he took it upon himself to do so, I would have a better view about what John was putting on. But we never see that. We have never any indication that John, that Sam receives any degree of training, which would be ne clearly was necessary to help him survive when he's sent north of the wall, like a couple months from now. And and to, as a as a way to point out how frustrated I was with Spencer, Spencer was talking about like, well, when he went north of the wall, he couldn't fight, and I'm like, he killed a White Walker, <laughs> he killed a Thin, <laughs> which is all just happenstance. Like it wasn't through his own skills, obviously. Yeah, but it, it was a fun talk in the sense that we were just so damn drunk and so damn passionate that after the end of three hours, we both were almost just sweating. We were so angry at each other. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, kudos to us for not descending this podcast into that conversation, but I think we did make our points. Anything else about this scene before we move on? No, as I said, it makes for a great degree of commentary, and I'm going to love talking about the, another scene we have with Alistair Thorne before this episode is done. Then we go to Vase Dothrak, uh, and Viserys is dragging the handmaiden by her hair to Danny's tent. Uh, Viserys seems to think that Danny sent her to give him commands, um, which. Danny's immediate concern is for the girl, right? And apparently Viserys has this impression because Danny invited him to supper. So like, Viserys is a, he's a wild guy. You're like, hey, you want to have lunch with me? He's like, do not tell me what to do. <laughs> Jesus, dude. What a nut. Uh, and Danny said, look, I, I got dinner. I made you a gift, which Viserys throws at her in a rage. Says, ah, it smells like horse manure. You address me. Uh, you're trying to dress me. Um, and he says, next you would turn me into one of them, wouldn't you? Next, you'll want to braid my hair. All-time comeback alert. All-time comeback alert. You have no right to a braid. You've won no victories yet. Which, oh my God. Dropping that on Viserys, which is true, by the way. He's not won any victories. He's the beggar king. He flies off the handle and attacks her. Danny fights back. Uh, we get a sense it's probably the first time she's ever done this oh, based yeah. on the horrified look from Viserys. And she stands up and growls, I am a Khaleesi of the Dothraki. I am the wife of the Great Call and I carry his son inside me. The next time you raise a hand to me will be the last time you have hands. Big turning point for Danny's character here. Question. Is this the first we've heard that Danny's pregnant? Oh, no, no, no. Remember um, the, the, the the handmaiden asked her like last time she bled the whor- and then touched her boobs? I wanted to make sure that scene happened earlier because I remembered that scene, but I wouldn't remember if, we had, if we'd seen it in the prior episode because otherwise this would be... I, I was almost wondering where this scene was filmed out of order because I couldn't remember for sure if we'd already had that confirmation that it's public now when she's pregnant. Yeah, it is. Okay. It is at this point. Um, yeah, so it's, it's his Danny pushing back. And I... I you tell me if I'm wrong from my memory. I do think that's the last time that he raised a hand to her. I think it's very much the last time he raised a hand to her. He clearly, there are clearly two aspects of this that just utterly shock him. A, that she's even willing to just tell him off has never happened before. Uh, even previously of when he was directly threatening her, all she could say was, don't hurt him when her Dothraki guards come in and stop him. This time, she's directly telling him off in person. And then when he starts to lay a hand to her, she freaking smacks him with a belt. And that look of shock on his face, priceless. Yeah, I loved it. Um, but it's big for her character because at some point she had to she had to speak up. And, um, you know, functionally, she does have more power than him right now. Just directly. Because it is true. All she would have to do is give the order and they'd cut his damn hands off. I mean, it would be no problem. Except in this city. It, Except in Vase Dothrak, of course. Yeah, you're not supposed. You, you don't. Uh, you don't. I guess wield weapons in Vase Dothrak, which we can maybe get to um, in Book Nerd Bitching. Hopefully, fingers crossed. We'll see. I don't know. We'll see. Um, anything here? I think they were just trying to to get you through that scene. I don't think there's a lot more. No, it's a pretty clear just scene of where she has fully claimed the mantle of Khal- Khaleesi of the Dothraki, and this is something that Viserys did not expect and can never take from her. And now, clearly, his plan has gotten outside of his control, to the degree he ever had any control in the first place. Okay, we cut to the wall, and John and Sam are cleaning. Now, what's interesting to me is that you, in that conversation about John's actions with Sam, you didn't have more sympathy towards Sam. I say this because... Sam gets really lawyery here. <laughs> and Spencer, you are a man of the law. He gets into the details. He starts reading the fine print because he's talking about how uh, some of the, the more senior people in the Night's Watch 
the officers go to the Molestown brothel. Spencer, what's the Molestown brothel? Molestown. Or what's Molestown? Molestown is one of the farthest north towns. It basically is a town of individuals that are kind of on the lands that are owned by those of the wall. So they're kind of under the sovereignty of the wall itself and its people. And it serves as kind of the, the most... Cl- the most close by bit of civilization that the wall has access to. And so you'll regularly hear stories about people going down to Molestown to either buy supplies that will come to the wall or entertain themselves in various ways that these two are talking about here. With workers. Well, Sam thinks it's unfair. Um, why do they have to take their vows while the officers get a little, quote, Sally on the side? <laughs> I'd never heard that before. Spencer, you heard that, uh, that phrase before? I had, not for a long damn time, and never actually spoke it out loud. I think I read it in a book. Mm, okay. Um, Sam talks about liking girls. He's like, hey, look, don't, don't look at me weird because I'm bringing this up. I like girls just as much as you do. They may not like me as much. Um, <laughs> and Sam just casually assumes that John has been with many girls. Now, John says he never has. He says he got close once. With Roz. Mm-hmm. Roz is like semi-famous at this point, right? <laughs> Girl's <laughs> got a rep. Of Roz. <laughs> but he, you know, in this sort of sad way, he explains that he couldn't go through with it because, uh, and then Sam goes, <laughs> he didn't know where to put it. <laughs> he goes, I know where to put it. Uh, but he explains that he, he said, what's my name? Uh, John Snow. Why is my last name Snow? Well, it's because you're a bastard. Well, he thought, well, what if I impregnate this woman? I would bring another bastard into the world who would feel the same pain and same shame of being a bastard as I do. Now, here's something I want to uh, point out to you, Spencer. I don't know if this uh, occurred to you in uh, the many watchings that you've done of this episode, but uh, I think that John is being a little um, naive here. Um, Listen, Roz has been here before, yeah. okay? Mm-hmm. If she doesn't want to get pregnant, she's not getting pregnant. And if she does, she's probably got a system to deal with it. So settle down, John. You're not going to protect Roz. Like, she doesn't need your protecting. I, I'm assuming <laughs> that the level of sex education going on in Westeros is somewhat below even, say, the abstinence-only education that you can sometimes find in the United States. So I'm just... I'm betting that John's level of frame of reference about why babies are made and the process that goes into making them is probably pretty limited can you imagine if john had told roz like oh no i can't i can't go through with this i need to protect you from having a bastard how long roz would have laughed in his face uh i think she would have been having that i think she would have told Tyrion that joke when he showed up just because let me tell you about this thing this guy (laughs) told me like 10 years ago it's just great and then sam listens to this sort of like sad uh, soliloquy and he goes so you didn't know where to put it and they start play fighting uh and then thorn walks in Thorn mocks them for being cold. Um, uh, Thorn mentioned it's been 10 years since the last winter, and John says he remembers. And Thorn says, oh, yeah, well, did you get cold there in Winterfell with the servants uh, making your fires? Now, this is this is Thorn's ignorance here, because I doubt very seriously that John had many servants uh, building his fires. Uh, he didn't, Thorn doesn't seem to quite understand where John fit in that hierarchy, but Thorn explains that he spent six months beyond the wall during the winter. <laughs> And uh, because Mance Raider's uh, army had been attacking, uh, and Mance Raider's folks knew that a storm was coming. Uh, so they hid, but Thorne and his folks got caught in that storm and explains it was so cold that if you took your glove off, you'd lose a finger to frostbite. He explains that if you took your, your um, uh, you'd, uh, I don't work blue, so if you tried to pee, uh, you'd get in trouble. Um, <laughs> it's an anatomical ex- body part, come on. 
Uh, I don't want blue. You know me. Uh, Thorin explains that the horses died first, and they ate them. And then when people started to die, they had to eat them too, but that wasn't easy. Now, Thorn is a jerk, and he should not be in a particularly high, in my opinion, uh, position of leadership, but he is a tough man. Oh, no um, doubt about that. What he's explaining here is is really tough, and Thorn says, hey, look, you can take your vows, but you're no men of the Night's Watch. You're still boys, and you won't survive the winter. And this is, you know... I hate Thorn. He's a he gets better on the show at least in terms of mixing him in with other characters and showing that he can be a very capable combat leader when he's called to the situation. But he's an asshole and a horrible teacher of men. But he's not wrong about what they will need to do to survive, about the strength and hardness that they're going to need to be able to persevere in what is a horrible and often very short life that has been chosen for them. And neither John or Sam really have any response to this once it's thrown, once it's put in their faces. They just kind of stare off with their own kind of PTSD look on their faces as he walks out of the room. Um, but as you said, I guess my problem with it is like I feel like Thorne is teaching statistics, and it's day one, and he's like, "You run that regression by hand. You have to do it right now." Like you know what I'm saying? Like get them there. Like I understand yeah. that's where they need to get to, but you're not taking baby steps. You're just jumping right to the end of the book. And, it, and again, just shows how fucked this organization is because apparently their initial training is already done. <laughs> yeah, and that's that. That's what I'm saying. A failure of leadership. You stayed really quiet there because I know you liked G.R. Mormont, but I think it's a failure of leadership. Yeah. He's he, he's not running an organization that teaches people. And I sympathize with him because he's working with just impossible odds. He just does not have the resources that he needs to. This is, you know, George Washington and Hamilton singing about how Congress is letting him down. But he could there are things that he could be doing better with this that he clearly is not doing. As you referenced, I have a lot of sympathy for Sam. I think he is a character that's been had a horrible series of events thrown atop of him. But I think it's worth noting that the main moments that we see him grow over the course of this series are when he's being forced to go outside of his comfort zone and maybe confront the fact that a lot of this cowardice that he's wrapped up in his view of himself is just himself putting it on rather than what he actually could be capable of. A lot of times we see him grow, he's actually away from John, having to survive on his own. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, but I I don't know. It, it, to your point, the organization is screwed up. No, very much so. Um, and I... I... <laughs> And Thorne is a great character because he can simultaneously make a good point, teach you something as the viewer or the reader about what winter actually is. Because you understand, it's only the fourth episode of this show. Like, we hear winter. Well, we're still thinking about winter like we think of winter, not, you know, winter with, you know, winds so strong it would uplift 100-foot trees, which is what Thorne was describing. Mm-hmm. Or that you can't even expose one, you know, centimeter or inch of your... Uh, of your your skin without getting frostbite. I mean, it, it's it's serious, and he's teaching uh, them and us about that, but also being completely unreasonable. Yeah, I mean, and you know, from his perspective, these are two individuals that probably don't even really remember the last winter. That from the perspective, well, John does. John said he does. John does, and John also confronts him that I make my own fires, to which Thorne just kind of brushes off and says, "Oh, that's admirable." Let me get to my actual point yeah. right now. Um, but I mean, from the perspective <laughs> of our viewers, as you said, we think that the fact it's snowing at the wall means it's winter. We have no real idea what a proper Westerosi winter is actually like. And this is Thorne really telling us for the first time that it is a special kind of hell. Yeah, totally. Uh, anything else on this scene? No, I think we can move on. All right, we'll move to Vaze Dothrak. And Danny seems to be in shock. Yeah. <laughs> she's talking to Jorah, and she's like, 
I hit the dragon. I can't believe it. Which is super realistic because her entire life, she's viewed Viserys as the rightful king. And he has been a father figure to her, right? Because she had nobody else taking care of him. And for all of his faults, he has kept her alive. Uh, so she finally reared up to him. She finally pushed back on him and she's having some self-doubt. And Danny goes, look, she's, he's still the true king. Chora. <laughs> MVP situation. Truth now, child. Do you want to see your brother sitting on the Iron Throne? And he says, no, man, she has grown so much in four episodes. It's insane because she never would have given that answer four episodes ago. Um, and San Danny seems to think that people are waiting for him. She goes, oh, the common people are waiting for him, which is what she's heard her entire life. And probably not just from Viserys. She's probably heard it from Illyrio or any of the other Targaryen sympathizers that she's run across in Essos. Mm -hmm. Jorah drops this. I am nominating it for best line of the episode. The common people play for rain, health, and a summer that never ends. They don't care what games the High Lords play. Great line. Great, Great line. line. Great line from Jorah. So true. Yeah, and I'd almost say that this line is the driving quote behind, like, book four of the series. When we're just wandering through the, the what remains of the Riverlands, just focused on what the common people's experience of the Game of Thrones has been like. It is a an arc phrase for what George R. R. Martin is in many ways trying to say through this series, I feel. Yeah, and you know what you, you know the, what I thought of, and it's not connected at all, except through, um, you know, the, how it's written and the characterization of the people in Westeros. But I immediately thought of the Brotherhood without banners. Yeah, right, Very. because they get this idea. They get that it doesn't matter. Like you know, even when we first see the Brotherhood, it's like, you know, you guys are fighting for King Robert. King Robert's dead, and it's like, no, we fight for the people, mm -hmm. and the people care about rain, health, and a summer that never ends. It's a wonderful perspective on Jorah's part. It shows the degree of uh, perspective and knowledge that he has that clearly Viserys and a lot of his toadies just utterly lack, or at least are willing to lie to Viserys about. Yeah, Jorah clearly uh, not good with women, <laughs> not good with boundaries, uh, but he's not a dumb guy. No. Uh, he, he's a pretty smart dude. And Danny asked Jorah what he prays for, and Jorah looks down, looks away, and says he prays for home. Mm -hmm. And Danny says, her too. And then Danny kind of has a realization. She says, my brother will never take back the Seven Kingdoms. He couldn't lead an army even if my husband gave him one. He'll never take us home. Truth. Truth and a rather hopeless moment for those two, but they, neither of them really sees a way out. Yeah, neither one of them in that moment think they're ever going home, which is weird because they both do. <laughs> it shows that Danny has not fully completed her evolution yet, that she doesn't see that she could in any way lead or direct this. That she sees this as just now a dead end rather than an opportunity for her. Yep. Anything else on this? No. I think we're going on to one of my favorite scenes just because of a wonderful Robert quote that's associated with it. Oh, I got it coming. We go to King's Landing and the jousting is just about to start uh, for the tourney for the King's Hand. Edward Stark, who does not approve of said tourney. And King Bobby B is about nine sheets to the wind. He's drinking out of some sort of <laughs> like curled up like horn. Uh, he's splayed out. No, uh, no posture at all. Cersei is there. She's all dolled up and looks completely over everything. And Littlefinger approaches Sansa, who's in the audience. And Arya, one of my low-key favorite moments of this episode, just belts out, "Why do they call you Littlefinger?" Like, <laughs> and young Arya has a way. Young Arya has a way of asking a question that seems accusatory. Like her tone is just like, "Why? Why do they call you?" And like, it's completely unprompted. Well, Littlefinger. He's cool. He, he backs up and he, he gives uh, an answer that I would uh, probably call some alternative facts. Uh, <laughs> Pete, keep it. <laughs> he explained that. <laughs> yeah, he explains that when he was small, 
Uh, he was a child, and he was from a little part uh, of, of Westeros called the Fingers. So, you know, it's an inc- inc- incredibly uh, clever nickname. I feel like this is one of those stories that if Arya actually had a normal childhood, like 10 years from now, she's going to think back and says, that fucker lied to me. That's what it actually meant. Yeah, no, that's, but that, hey, look, Littlefinger had an alternative fact for you. He's ready to go. Yeah. Uh, cut to King Bobby B. I've been sitting here for days. Start the damn joust before I piss myself. Oh, that was a perfect Bobby B. accent. Bravo, sir. Clap for that one. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. I love King Bobby B. He's the best. And as soon as he belts out, start the damn joust before I piss myself. Cersei doesn't say a thing. Gets up and leaves. So Cersei, <laughs> done. Uh, for those keeping home, keeping keeping track at home, lasted about 15 seconds in this turn. Yeah, hasn't even started yet. He's announcing it. They haven't even blown the trumpets and she's gone. Uh, the first joust is um, Sir Hugh of the Vale against the Mountain, Sir Gregor Clegane. At this point, we don't know who he is. But we do know his last name is Clegane, so he's related to the Hound. Tough draw here for Sir Hugh. Uh, this is Selection Sunday, uh, and he got he got the Tar Heels in the first round. This is bad news. Uh, <laughs> and I like how they do this scene because the joust unfolds, and you you hear overlaid with that little finger narrating it to Sansa, um, and it, that works in the backstory of the characters. Um, and they go, they're bowing to the king, and of course he's yes, yes, enough of the bloody pump, get on with it. And King Bobby B is the best sports announcer of all time, right? <laughs> can you imagine, can you imagine if he called basketball games? Oh, you fouled a man, quit your whining and get on with it. Like, <laughs> Get off the turf, that's not a technical. Yeah, get up and fight. Like, he doesn't give a shit. Like, he's just the best. And, and by the way, if he was my king, I'd be so, just so proud. I'd be like, let me let me get this right. We're at a joust. It's probably about lunchtime. King's drunk as all hell, and he doesn't even like people bowing to him. He's like, "Stop bowing to me and just fucking kill each other." Right? <laughs> I want to see people hit each other. Come on. Yeah. So they do. They get on with it, uh, and the first pass through nothing, but the second, it seems to me. You tell me. Uh, it seems like the mountain uh, intentionally tried to hit Sir Hugh a little higher than he needed to. Uh, his uh, his. What is it called? Jousting rod or whatever? Yeah, he's Lance. He's Lance. Uh, it, 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 it seems to go pretty laser-focused on the neck area right there. Hits him in the neck. Uh, a shard uh, of the of the sort of uh, the wood goes into Sir Hugh's neck, and he dies. And it's funny, because this seems to sober up King Bobby B pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. I want people to hit All each other sudden, and die. All of a sudden, he can stand without bobbing and weaving, right? Like he's, <laughs> whoa, shit, all right. Uh, and the hound seems pissed because the hound knows Sir Gregor Clegane. That is his brother. Uh, and uh, I think he probably knew the intent there. And then Littlefinger, smarmy, leans over to Sansa. Not what you were expecting. He then tells Sansa the story uh, from as ha- of how the hound got his burn. And Littlefinger little finger suggests that uh, when, when the Hound was little, he was playing with a toy. It happened to be uh, Gregor Clegane's toy. Gregor Clegane did not say anything to him, did not say, hey, stop playing with my toy, whatever. He just calmly went over, grabbed his head, put it into the coals. And that's why you see a big burn uh, down the side of the Hound's uh, face. And I'm going to broach this as a potential book nerd bitching topic later on, just from how remarkably different a scene can play out and its tone when it's pretty much the exact same dialogue, but said by somebody else. 
Because notably, as you remember, it's the Hound himself that tells Sansa the scene in the book. And, well, I'll offer this as a book nerd pitching topic to rant it into a greater detail, but it comes across really differently. And I'm curious from your opinion as to why they chose to change this. Hmm. All right, we'll get to it. Well, then Littlefinger suggests, and this is the power move. This is yet again another Littlefinger alpha move. He tells Sansa, well, if anybody ever hears you tell that story, well, there'd be hell to pay. The Hound wouldn't like that. And so Sansa's like, and from Sansa's perspective, I'll give her some credit. She's like, what the fuck, dude? I didn't even ask for this story. And now you're telling me that, like, I've got some state secret, secret, right? Like, why are you giving me this information? I, I picture her just writing a letter back to her mom. Hey, mom, doing okay in King's Landing. Uh, listen, met Uncle Peter yesterday. Kind of creepy. Yeah, I think he wants to get me killed. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping it's best that's what he wants. Story. And I don't believe the story about how he got his name. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, then uh, Cersei visits Ned. Are oh, you want to say something? Yeah, one more quick question. You know, from our perspective, when we first watched this in perspective of Ned, this looks like a targeted assassination. That Hugh knew things, Hugh was involved, and now Hugh is dead by the hand of one of the lead Lannister bannermen. This is textbook. This is obvious. They are trying to kill off the various people with knowledge to prevent this conspiracy from getting out. However... We know that Hugh knew shit, that Hugh was not involved, that Hugh's just a random guy that apparently maybe the Mountain decided to kill today. Yeah, it was a bit of luck, right, for Littlefinger? Is it a bit because... of luck, or did the Mount, was the Mountain instructed by somebody to do this? I'm inclined to think it's just a fluke of events that played out. Yeah, me too. Uh, because that then that would also explain what, how giddy Littlefinger was at the death. Because yeah. he wasn't affected at all. And I'm sure he was thinking, oh, this is going to look good, right? Because now Ned's going to think, oh, okay, well, he was targeted. There was something there. Yet again, more fishy circumstances around the death of John Aaron. Chaos is a ladder. Chaos is a ladder. Then Cersei visits Ned in the Tower of the Hand. And Ned remarks that the tournament isn't his yet again. He's trying to tell everybody, it's not my tournament. Stop saying that. Um, and Cersei says she wants to put the, quote, business with the wolf behind them. Uh, uh, minimalize that a little much for me. I mean, I've got pets. Uh, Ned doesn't respond to that. And Ned just flatly asks what she's doing there. Cersei asks the same of Ned. What are you doing here? What are you doing in the capital? Uh, Ned said he's there to serve the king in the realm. Cersei throws shade at Robert. <laughs> basically like, ah, he's just going to eat, drink, and whore his way. He's, he's going to be, he's going to fuck up, basically. doesn't matter if you're here or not. Uh, and Ned doesn't take the bait. And Cersei just looks at him. And, you know, Cersei, for all her faults, occasionally does have some real serious truth bombs. Mm -hmm. And she just goes, you're just a soldier, aren't you? Cersei then makes mention that Ned wasn't trained to lead. Brandon was. That's a you were never meant to lead. You're just a soldier. It's a great catch on he, Oh, very good. And, and it, you can tell it hits a little close to home because Ned decides to fire back, which he's not doing a lot in this conversation, right? Cersei's throwing stuff out there and Ned's just looking at her. When he says that, Ned jumps up and he says, I was also trained to kill my enemies, Your Grace. And she says, as was I. And it's an interesting conversation because they all, well, Ned keeps his exact opinion to Cersei when she leaves. Cersei almost seems to leave with a certain measure of respect for Ned that she didn't have previously that he's willing to kind of make this not even barely even uh, veiled threat towards her and stand his ground with respect to it. Yeah. Agreed. I, um, I, but I also just now have a on. delightful visual of uh, one of your, how you would respond if one of your neighbors basically forced you to take a knife to the throat of one of your cats, how well that next conversation afterwards would play out between the two of you. Oh, it'd be a problem. <laughs> 
It'd be a real serious problem. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's like, um, I don't know if you heard me say this on the, uh, I don't think I captured it on Whiskey on the Weekends, but um, for those that also listen to other pods on the Magnum Talks podcast channel, we have Whiskey on the Weekends where we had some folks over uh, at my house for a New Year's party and How the Hammer Woo was here. We introduced the character that is How the Hammer Woo. Well, How at one point was walking through my house and he, I have two cats. I've got a little white cat and a kind of medium-sized black cat. Medium-sized black cat is not a people person. Mm-mm. Um, she is, she likes, you know, she has her routine and there's a lot of people in the house. Her routine was off. She was pretty upset and how completely unprompted just went to pet her. She wasn't asking to be pet, but how did it? And she scratched him. How comes to me and goes, you know, that cat just scratched me. I said, yeah. She goes, he goes, maybe you should put her in the back. And I looked at how I said, how I'm going to put you in the back before I put that cat in the back. <laughs> I missed that. I would, lo- I would love to have been there for that moment. So that tell you what I would do if somebody made me kill one of my cats. So I'm sure, and it, I'm sure that that level of hatred uh, is there for Ned, not just because it was wrong, but also because of the rift it caused with his daughter, which we covered earlier. Oh yeah. Um. Anyway, kind of a weird scene, but I think what the show is trying to do is they're trying to set you up for the the Ned Cersei friction, mm-hmm. uh, which is it does, and and it, and and we have more on that later. Anything else from the scene? No, as you said, it's setting up what's going to be a maybe even two or three scenes that the two of them share together when they do their bit of verbal sparring matches. They slowly, vaguely start to take a measure of their respective abilities, and I think ultimately Cersei is gaining more knowledge about her opponent than Ned is gaining about his. Agreed. It's you know, and I know you love him, but he's out of his element, and he just continues to lose round after round. Yeah. Um, I, I scored this one, Cersei ten, Ned nine. Now we go to the inn at the crossings, um, and Cat and and Sir Roderick Cassell are going south, right, mm-hmm. uh, from from Winterfell, traveling to King's Landing, and they're sitting at a table, and clearly Cat is trying to hide. No, who she no, is. they're actually going the opposite direction, aren't they? Cause the, the, that was the last scene that uh, Ned and Cat had shared. Oh, you're absolutely right. Damn, strike two for me. One more and you, you put me back in the dugout. Cat um, <laughs> and Roderick Casella are sitting at the table. You're right, they're going back north. She's still trying to hide who she is. And some dope with a musical instrument of some kind um, sits there and starts bugging him. And he starts singing some weird song. And in comes none other than Tyrion Lannister. The innkeeper says they have no room and... Tyrion immediately starts waving around a coin, asking if anybody would be willing to give up their room. And then we see, for the first time, Bronn! We have no idea who he is at this moment, but I I entirely forgot we met him in this scene. I thought we just kind of met him for the first time as just one of the next traveling companions, but it's... Yeah, and it's it's so in character because he sees an opportunity and goes, yeah, I'll give up my room, (laughs) and he gets the coin. Uh, he says he can, he can have his room and, uh, and Tyrion's like, great. And, and the point I wanted to make about this scene is the way Tyrion conducts himself is ridiculous. Like the entitlement of the Lannisters is on full display here. Oh yeah. Tyrion just walks in. He's got two, what, two soldiers? Yeah, two soldiers and a, and, and a Night's Watch recruiter. And he starts waving around money. Hey, won't you give me, like... Does it ever occur to you, Tyrion, that somebody could sack those two fucking soldiers you have and take your money and slit your throat? Well, no, it doesn't, because he has the last name Lannister. And if you do that, well, you know, the reigns of Castamere. You know, Tywin will burn you down root and stem. And so that's kind of the way he acts. And it's it's just, I don't know, I found it off point. And as this scene plays out, apparently this is never a memo that Catelyn fully got. Apparently she didn't pay attention in her music class back in the day, because... 
she decides to directly poke the lion with before this scene is done. She's a Stark and a Tully. She's not going to back down to the Lannisters. Well, Cat stands up when uh, well, the Tyrion comes over and he recognizes Cat, and you could tell Cat did not want him to recognize her. Well, Tyrion was very, very warm. Like, oh, hey, Lady Stark. Like, hey, it's good to see you here. Last time I saw you, you know, we were on good terms. I, I just did your son a kindness. Like, <laughs> you know, I like the Starks. I mean, at this point, he likes he likes Jon Snow. He, he's cl- he doesn't have a problem with her. At worst, he's just kind of curious why she's there. There's no negative intention in anything about what he's saying here. But he does not know what she is fully convinced of at this point. <laughs> Well, then she stands up and starts a monologue. Spencer, did you write many notes about this monologue? I did not. I basically just, I think my, I actually have a quote here. Uh, Catelyn works the room. All right. So I have got all of the references uh, that she makes during this speech. And so basically what she's doing in the speech is she's establishing connections with other people in the room. She's trying, like you say, she's working in the room. She's trying to get people on her side because ultimately what she wants to do is apprehend Tyrion. And so she stands up. And she notices someone with the seal of Harrenhal. And she says that uh, her father has a connection with Lady Wint mm-hmm. of Harrenhal. She says, hey, you, you have the, the, the red stallion. You are, uh, my, my father knows Jonas Bracken. Mm-hmm. Um, Tyrion is starting to get confused. He says, I envy you all your father's fine friends, but I don't quite see the point of this. And she says, oh, you, the twin towers of Lord of Frey. I hope Lord Walder as well. Uh, and he says, yes, he is, uh, my lady. Uh, and he asks for your, uh, your presence, uh, on his 90th name day, he plans to take another wife. <laughs> and Tyrion just scoffs at this, which is hilarious. It's like, pretty gross. At what point does Tyrion realize he's screwed? Cause he clearly hasn't yet. He clearly is just like, well, it's, this is an odd introduction to everybody in the room. It's when Kat then turns and says, and can, it directly accuses Tyrion of conspiring to murder Bran. And that's when you can see this sort of, like, he becomes a ghost, right? Like, it, it just washes over his face. And she says, in the name of King Robert and the good lords you serve, I call upon you to seize him and help me return him to Winterfell to await the king's justice. Everyone pulls swords, points him at Tyrion's throat. Boom, into the episode. And it's a testament to Catelyn as a leader. She is, as you said, she is a lady of House Tully and she's a lady of House Stark and she is perfectly capable of inspiring people to action. This entire room of knights and noble figures is on her side before she is done. To the point that uh, Tyrion's two guards, who presumably are pretty well-trained individuals, are just caught entirely flat-footed and outnumbered and play no role in his protection. Just because they can't. Yeah, I imagine they did this sort of like two-step back away. Like, <laughs> well, uh, we'll 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 uh, let your father know. Uh, best of luck now. <laughs> okay, well, uh, that wraps up the recap. Anything you want to say generally about this episode before we jump into best line? I mean, I thought I thought this was in, in many ways again a transitional episode, but it was a very important one because over the course of this, we got really hammer tone the nature of where the plot is going in terms of Ned's investigation of what exactly happened with respect to the death of John Aaron and Catelyn's actions in terms of fully integrally starting the war between House Stark and House Lannister. Um, so it is a transitional episode, but it is in many ways an early direction of where everything is going to happen from here. <clears throat> yeah, I agree. Uh, I like it. It's a good episode, <clears throat> but it is, it's just setting up. It's, it's moving things along, trying to get you to where, 
Season one goes. I love season one. We've talked about this. We're going to continue to talk about it during our season one coverage. I just think it's great. Uh, really enjoyed the rewatch and so. uh, enjoyed the recap. Very, very much so. So let's, let's go to best line of the episode. <clears throat> In this segment, <clears throat> excuse me, we go back and forth where I'll say a line, Spencer says a line, I say a line until we're, we've exhausted all of our notes. Uh, and then I, Emperor of Best Line, will select best line of the episode. Spencer, do you have a first line you want to go uh, with? Of course. This, of course, being season one, I literally have 14. I may tailor these down. Woo! Uh, but I'll start early just because it's a, it's, a it's a line that, again, embodies Tyrion's philosophy with respect to how he carries himself in the world. I'm, as Bran saying, I'm not a cripple. Then I'm not a dwarf. My father will rejoice to hear it. I've got uh, Theon saying... Rob is Lord of Winterfell. That means I do what he says and you do what I say. Good one. Uh, I will do... Let's skip this one, folks, on this one. I have a tender spot in my heart for cripples, bastards, and broken things. Another very classic Tyrion line. Agreed. Completely. Um... Oh, and one just a reference. I'm not going to put this one forward, but I think it's it's... An interesting line, because I think it's Tyrion talking about himself. If uh, Bran asking, will I really be able to ride? You will. On horseback, you'll be as tall as any of them. That's an odd land to say to Bran. It feels almost like he's in many ways speaking of himself there. So that's an interesting yep. line, too. Yep. That's good. I didn't write that one down. <clears throat> um, I've got John talking to Sam. It's not going to get any easier, you know. You'll have to learn to defend yourself. Good line. I'll do a line from a uh, just shortly before then. Are you sure you want to do this? No. <laughs> yeah, that one is pretty good. Um, here we go. Viserys talking to the handmaiden. Oh, you pretty little idiot. <laughs> he's just such a dick. He, he, he's, just, he's incapable of summoning any human moment that lasts more than three minutes. He's, he can't, he can't yep. do it. Uh, <laughs> it just because of the level of foreshadowing, I'll do a line by her. Oh, there he is. He can only wait so long. Sorry, can you hear the dog on there? Do you want to? Yeah, you want to deal with him? I think Bridget's finally here, and so he's just barking at the door. So one sec. All right. Well, I will talk. Um, a lot of the episode, a lot of the best lines that we're going to talk about uh, through this segment are are short, but they're character driven, and that's because there's not a lot of plot progression here, but there's so much character progression. We learned so much about different characters. And in that vein, I'm going to throw another one out here. And that's when Jorah is talking to Danny. And Danny says, hey, you know, you sold slaves. And Jorah's like, yeah. And he goes, well, why? And he said, well, I have an expensive wife. And she goes, where's your wife now? And he goes, in another place with another man. So on the, on the surface of that, right, it, it, it doesn't seem like an impactful line. But it's so much character development. It tells you so much about Jorah and what's happened to him and where his mind's at right now. So I, I nominate that one. Do you have and one? It's a testament also to also Ian Glenn as an actor just because he can steep so much kind of pain or loss in that line, just even how he phrases it. Um, I'll offer an earlier one just because it's, it's, it's interesting foreshadowing. I've seen a man who could change his face the way other, other men change their clothes. Uh, that's a good one. Good one. I didn't even write that down. Good one. Uh, I've got one. This is a really strong. This might go off as like uh, one of the favorites. The seed is strong. It's a very strong and important line. It's a line that's just setting off everything that happens in terms of Ned's investigation and ultimately the war between House Stark and Lannister. Very important line. Uh, just because of the level of snark that we don't normally see from Ned, 
it's the hands turn. Uh, um, Janos Slint saying it's the hands turn that's causing all this trouble, my lord. The king's tournament. I assure you, the hand wants no part of it. <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, John to Sam. You can't fight. You can't see. You're afraid of heights and everything else. Probably. What are you doing here? One that there's another one that I love, uh, and it's very short, but it's just such a wonderful statement by Arya of where Ned ends his little speech, which is clearly well meant about how she'll be a lady, she'll rule a hold fast, she'll raise sons that'll be knights. And Arya just stares at him and with just utter honesty says, No, that's not me. And all Ned can do is smile in response to it because it is pure her. And we're seven seasons later and it is not her. Yeah, very much so. Uh, here's another really strong one. Distrusting me is the wisest thing you've done since you got off your horse. Well done. Little finger talking the net. Very good one. Uh, let's see here. I am the Khaleesi of the Dothraki. I am the wife of the great Khal, and I carry his son inside me. The next time you raise a hand to me will be the last time you have hands. Very, very good. Uh, all right, next one. Sally on the side. <laughs> it's, not really, it's not really a line. It's a phrase. I like it though. I like it. I'm a big fan. I mean, I'll I'll I'll, I'll do a long one here, uh, just because it's a great speech by Thorne. The horses died first. Didn't have enough to feed them to keep them warm. Eating the horses was easy, but later when we started to fall, that wasn't easy. Soon we will have new recruits, and you will be pa- passed on to the Lord Commander for assignment. They will call you Men of the Night's Watch. But you'd be fools to believe it. Your boys still. And come with her, you will die like flies. Powerful little speech mm. by Thorn there. It is, and very serious. And in that vein, I have another serious one. I've been sitting here for days, start the damn joust before I piss myself. My nominee for best line of the episode, because it's just perfect <laughs> character line right there. So good, uh, so good. All right, uh, two. Uh, these are two from the same scene by Jorah, so I'm just going to combine them together. Uh, one snarky of where. You know, Danny's saying, I hit the dragon. Your brother Rhaegar was the last dragon. Viserys is less than the shadow of a snake. That's very little poetic way to refer to Viserys. And then we referenced this one already. He's probably going to be able, maybe my actual nominee for line of the episode. The common people pray for rain, health, and a summer that never ends. They don't care what games the High Lords pray, play. Such a good one. Such a good one. Um, Cersei to Ned. You're just a soldier, aren't you? Good one. And I'm actually out of lines. I think I finished up my entire list. Got any more? That's interesting. This is the first time we've done this. I finished at the same time you did. (laughs) Okay. Referential. Uh, Yeah. I I think we got a good collection here of ones to cork from. Okay. You ready? Mm Okay, the best line of the episode, season one, episode four, Crippled's Bastards and Broken Things is The common people pray for rain, yeah. health, and a summer that never ends. They don't care what games the High Lords play. It's such a great line. It had to be the winner. So good, so good. Uh, and a, a strong honorable mention is The Seed of Strong. Problem with that is it's not really a quote, more of a phrase, um, but it's a very important one. But I do, I like that, I like that quote from Jorah, it's great. Uh, and I do think, as you pointed out during our recap, it's a through line um, for what Martin is trying to do with this storytelling. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Well, Spencer, this is where I turn it over to you for a little segment called Book Nerd Bitching. Well, we've not entirely lost your role yet. I've got a variety of topics for me to pick from. I'm hoping you'll pick eh, two or three to wrap us up with. That sound good to you? 
Sounds good. Fire All right. Well, as we said, I was overjoyed to hear the reference to Greyjoy Uncles. In the show, we only ever get a reference to, well, Balon Greyjoy and his brother Euron in terms of the uh, older generation ahead of Theon. But did you know that the two of them actually had eight other brothers, several of whom made it to adulthood? And do each have their own fascinating stories associated with the Greyjoy Rebellion and how evil of a person Euron Greyjoy actually is? So, my proposed first book nerd bitching topic is the Greyjoy Uncles. Who are they? What have they done? And what do, what do, what have what they've done to each other say about themselves? Option number two. As you talked about, it was a bit of an odd scene in the bath uh, between Viserys and I think the name of the handmaiden is Doria or Doria or something like that. Uh, but they brought up an interesting topic of where she asks him, what is it that happened to the dragons? And he doesn't really respond to the question of what happened to them or where they went. So my second proposed topic for Book Nerd Bitching is, what did happen to the dragons? Why is it that something that was so very much foundational part of the Targaryen power and rule, so well-known that they wrote books about it and their skulls still adorn the, the uh, Red Keep, or at least, well, a part of it now, have so thoroughly disappeared into history that the average person doesn't even think they even existed anymore. So, topic number two. Topic number three, quicker in the summary, Vice Dothrak and the Dothraki. What is this great city? Where did it come from? Where did the Dothraki people themselves come from? And what does their great city in the middle of the Dothraki Sea stand for? Option number, what are we up to? This five, I guess. Uh, Littlefinger versus the Hound. Uh, said the story about the Hound in the show is told by Littlefinger. In the books, it's told by Sandor Clegane, the Hound himself. Why did the show? What is this? How does this make for two very different scenes? And why did the show change this? Which is an open question to you. And the last option: Tobho Mott, the armorer that Gendry works for. Seemingly an insignificant character, but he finds a way to work himself integrally into several scenes and suggests that even though magic has kind of vaguely disappeared from the world from most perspectives. It still lingers in varieties of ways, including those who have ancient knowledge about how to work what is ultimately very magical materials. So, those are your, I think, six options. Can you tell me which two or three you'd like me to talk about? And could they actually be ones I prepared this time? We're running a little long, and as I established at the start of this podcast, I've got takeout Indian waiting for me. Uh, a little old man, <laughs> get it? Uh, <laughs> old man, it's been waiting for me. <laughs> so good. Uh, so I'm going to go with two instead of three. Um, but I would like to point out to the listeners, if you've hung in there with us so far, thank you very much. I'm glad you're listening. But if any of those uh, that you just heard from Spencer you'd like to hear that I don't pick, just go to www.mangumtalks.com, upper right-hand corner, click Contact Us and let us know. We're happy to revisit them in later episodes. Uh, Spencer will keep his notes, I promise. So the two I'm going to pick for you here today, Spencer, is What Happened to the Dragons and Vase Dothrak.
You're giving me two. Two. I prepared six topics and you're giving me two because of your love of Indian food. Is this what you're telling me right now? Well, part of that was to shoehorn in the old Nan joke, but yeah, you get two. Admittedly, the old Nan joke was very impressive, but come on. Again, four pages on Tobo Amat that no one's ever going to get. Okay. Give me this. Give what? me this. There okay, is an audition go. video of Rory McCann as San- the actor who plays Sander Clegan. Have you ever seen it? No. Okay. This audition video we'll just treat as my treatise on the subject of why they should have stuck to the book and had Rory McCann, Sander Clegane, deliver his own background and story to Sansa. We're going to put up... I don't even know how to use Facebook or post things, but we're going to post it on Facebook and you and everybody else can see it. Because it's a wonderful example of how having a character tell their own story can come across as much more passionate, much more meaningful, and much more revealing about their own character. So that's my brief little rant on that subject. Sound good? Okay, so, yeah, well, a couple things. One, you sounded like you were 85 when you said you don't know how to use Facebook. Uh, two, just to <laughs> be clear just to be clear to everybody, so when Littlefinger gives the story about how the hound, uh, Sandra Clegane, uh, got his his burn, uh, in the books, there's a, there's a competing story that the hound actually delivers himself. And so I, I'm guessing, tell me if I'm right here, Spencer, that the actor, I guess when he auditioned, actually gave that speech? Yeah, in the books, it's basically a speech that he gives to Sansa as they're kind of as he's escorting her away from the tournament, uh, and she's just trying to avoid his face. And in typical Hound style, he's essentially just trying to mock her in all the ways that he finds dissatisfying about society, and eventually leads to him telling the story. Rather than having Littlefinger tell it during the tournament, this is the first that Sansa ever hears about it, and it fundamentally sets the tone and tenor of their interactions for the next couple books. And so it's a delightful okay. scene, and it said that's apparently what they gave him as his, his initial audition was to read that scene. Ooh, in the biz we call this a tease. Okay, everybody, go to Facebook.com/slash/MangumTalks, and you can see that uh, that that link uh, to that YouTube video. We'll probably have some comments there, and we can uh, we can talk it out if you guys have any thoughts about it. But let's get back to the two that I picked: What Happened to Dragons and Vase Dothrak. Well, given that you control this and you're the God Emperor of this particular activity, which would you like me to start with? Um. Let's do Vase Dothrak first, and I, and that's because I think what happened to dragons. I don't know how you're going to do that, but that could be that could be five minutes, or it could be four hours. So, G- given that I've got I've received complaints about me just rambling along, I'll try to keep these both brief. Uh, they, in, in this episode, we finally arrive at the city of Vase Dothrak, which is a very unique city in both the, the annals of Essos and Westeros. It is situated roughly in the middle of the Dothraki Sea, which if you don't have a real idea of what it is, it's essentially an extended grassland where the various Dothraki cows and hordes are constantly moving about as they go between the various cities that line its edges. It's and Spencer, not... wouldn't you... Sorry to cut you off, but wouldn't you say that the, the, the great Dothraki Sea, that's that's got to be what? Two Westeros uh, if you, you, you lined them up north to south? Like, I mean, it's, it's really, it really big. It is utterly colossal. World. I mean... It's at least the size, I'd say, of Westeros in terms of how much of an area of territory it stretches over. And its boundaries are pretty roughly defined. Some would extend, say it extends all the way into the Red Waste to the far south, where Danny and Gang are going to be wandering at the end of this season and beginning of next. What's unique about it, though, is that going back just even 400 years ago, this area of territory that, again, is at least as big as Westeros, was not just simply scrubland and plains for as far as the eye can see. At present, there's not a single city, there's not a single town, there's not even a single road. There are no signs of permanent habitation. But there are countless ruins. As 
particularly in the books, as Danny is wandering about the various areas of the Thraki Sea as part of her adventures as being Khaleesi, they pass through just countless ruins of cities of different cultures that have just been devastated seemingly hundreds of years in the past. And that devastation wasn't simply an act of God. It was the act of the Dothraki's arrival upon the scene. Despite having just a controlling degree of influence over Westeros and a reputation that extends as far away as any part of Westeros, the Dothraki are pretty new to this part of the world. They've only really been in the quote-unquote occupied or known part of Essos for only about 400 years, having crossed over what are now known as the Bone Mountains, hint because the Dothraki killed everyone there, uh, Wait, during about for the real? same time as the Doom of Valeria. Yeah. Wait, for, what, what for part real? Of they were only there, they've only been there 400 years? The Dothraki have only been in this part of Essos for about 400 years, of where they arrived wow. about the exact same time as the Doom of Valeria, and then in, dur- during the century of blood that followed afterwards. They're very new mm. to the scene. Well, and tip of the cap to you, Spencer. Part of I did their not arrival, know that. and part of the reason it's called the Century of Blood. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a little bit of a lost bit of trivia, just because throughout most of the books, really all you see are the ruins that are left over from when they initially arrived on the page. Um, right. Upon arriving, during the middle of the fact that the various surviving um, Valerian cities were in a stage of just nonstop genocidal, suicidal war, the Dothraki emerged to conquer and destroy everything that was before them. And they just simply laid waste to essentially the entirety of the Dothraki Sea. Before they showed up, the Dothraki Sea was so heavily populated that it essentially resembles like the Fertile Crescent in the Tigris and Euphrates Marold history. It was, according to many of the the Meisters in Westeros, the foundational place from which humanity emerged, from which they think the the first men and the Andals both originally came out of, from where every civilization exited from to explore and settle various parts of the world. And now it's utterly depopulated. There were previously the kingdoms of the Sarnori, which are now essentially so thoroughly devastated that only one half-filled town remains, isolated up on the northern coast. There were countless other Giscari cities, the Giscari being the people that run the slave cities, that extended out into the Dothraki Sea. They're now utterly devastated with no surviving inhabitants, even on a temporary basis. The uh, city of Karth that we see heavily in season two that Danny spends most of her time at had various colonies and inhabitants that stretched out into the, what's now called the Red Waste into the Dothraki Sea that are now nothing more than dust and echoes. Even various Valerian colonies extending out from the city of Kohor Inhabited, the, uh, inhabited this area of Essos that are now, were now utterly devastated. What's unique about each of these cities is that they were so thoroughly destroyed, and this is just a testament to how devastating the Dothraki are, that they're no longer known by their original names. The only names they bear are the names the Dothraki have assigned to them. Like the city which we believe the Valerian city known as Isaria is now just simply known as Vice Kodak, the city of corpses in Dothraki. Now, as a result of this massive depopulation that was only really stopped as a result of, I guess, the Dothraki reaching the end of their desire to kill anymore, and also the epic stand of the Unsullied at the Battle of Kohor, uh, the Dothraki went back and essentially built the single city that inhabits the Dothraki Sea, the city of Vice Dothrak, which in no way resembles any of its predecessors in a variety of ways. First of all, it is utterly colossal. It is a city which is intended to be so large that the entirety of the Dothraki people, if all of the various Khals and all of their various groups came back, they would all still have space inside of it. It's that it's that massive, which kind of puts the look 
I mean, you, you, we saw the uh, what they how they had described Vice Dothrak in the show. I depicted it in the show. It didn't look like much more than a somewhat medium-sized town. Again, imagine something that fits all of Khal Drogo's people and then all of the other rival Khals in the same place. That's how expansive it is. But it's utterly, utterly empty most of the time because its only permanent inhabitants are the Doshkalim, the various people that Danny was intended to eventually become a member of. They are the former Khaleesis. The, after the death of their Khals, they are promptly taken by his blood riders to inhabit this place as being essentially a council of crones, a residual base of knowledge that serves, if not the political heart of the Dothraki people, at the very least their cultural heart, and by which any Khal that wants actual authority or anybody who actually wants to claim the title of being uh, the, stall- the stallion that mounts the world has to go to Vaistothrak and go before the crones to seek their endorsement. As you may remember, uh, a few episodes from now, we're going to see Danny eat an entirety of a horse heart before this unexplained council of old women. That is her seeking the endorsement of them that she is a Khaleesi of Caldrogo and that her son, uh, what was his name, Rego, will be the stallion that mounts the world. The city is also unique in that Rego. it adheres to no particular. Yeah, the city is also unique in that it adheres to no particular cultural uh, design in terms of how it's built. The Dothraki don't build things. Anything they they have, they they take with them upon a horse. Everything is merely temporary as part of their nomadic lifestyle. But the city itself is fully built up in the styles of hundreds of different races that they have enslaved and sent back to build their own style of homes there. As you wander through it, it is a who's who of cultures that have been de- devastated by the Dothraki. There's a, there's a road, that I think it's actually called the God's Road, that extends from the Horse Gate all the way to the center of Vice Dothrak, which is simply lined with the gods of the people that the Dothraki have destroyed. It is The city is in many ways a testament to what the Doshkalim believe the Dothraki can accomplish in terms of serving as a central place whereby which, regardless of their normal warring ways, regardless of their normal habits of mostly fighting each other rather than fighting the outside world, here no weapons are allowed, there's space for all people to be together, and there is a hope that someone will eventually claim the mantle of being the central call, the stallion that mounts the world, so the Dothraki people can be as one and function as a common entity. This is the hope that those Kalian have for their people and the reason that they maintain the city. But at the same time, the city is a testament to the devastation that is the Dothraki race. That It is an example, almost a taunt, to the rest of the world of come and see everything we have destroyed. Come and see the last vestiges of the world that we replaced and reduced to grass. And know that it is the central tenet and cultural belief of our people that we will eventually stretch this grass to every aspect of the world. And then the world will end with us. So, Vaistothrak is a fascinating city just for everything that it stands for, for everything it represents about the Dothraki people and all their potential for both a combined terrifying unity and the devastation that it will bring upon the world. And as we see in later seasons, it is this mantle that um, Danny claims to bring the army of the Dothraki to Westeros. And I do sincerely hope that the show will at least address that the Dothraki people arriving on any shore, arriving in any place, in any time in their history, has been an act of profound devastation that the areas that they've explored have never recovered from. 
Well, Spencer, I really liked that one, and I like that you framed it around what we see uh, both from Vice Dothraki, but also the Dothraki culture and the people in later seasons and how, you know, contextualizing, uh, A, how they live, B, the importance of that city, because it comes into play so predominantly in season six, uh, especially. So... <clears throat> I loved it. I've got good news for everybody. The CNN Chiron is breaking. Uh, government shut down, but Speaker Pelosi and President Trump agree on this legislation. We're passing this in both chambers of president signing it. Good job, Spencer. Don't say things that could never happen, sir. We don't need to explore that kind of fantasy. Uh, no, I thought that was really good. Another fun thing, too, is if you actually if you read through the various names that Othraki have assigned to the city, you can play kind of a guessing game of what happened to that city. Like, you know, certain ones are named like the City of Soldiers, presumably because they actually resisted a certain degree of Dothraki forces, <laughs> or the City of Skulls, or the City of Corpses. One of my favorite ones, though, is the City of Cowards. It's an Ibish city in the far north, which the Dothraki arrived to find that the city was completely abandoned and they couldn't find any of the inhabitants. So they just kind of frustratingly named it the City of Cowards and just left. It's still abandoned second, to this the, day. The, but The I, City of Cowards is an Ibish city? It is an Ibish city. Yeah, George. George is getting a little getting a little funny on the names there. He's uh, <laughs> inside joke, I think. <laughs> yeah, okay, fine, an Ibanese town, if you want, but it's an Ibish cult. I think the actual name of the town is Ibish. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, there's other ones like the City of Goats, or even uh, a former settlement which they simply call the City of Ghosts. And the only only knowledge we have of their culture is the Dothraki call the people that live there the Woodwalkers. So. It's a wonderfully haunting scape as you tour the Dothraki Sea, just to see all of these memories and vestiges of what were incredibly expansive, well-established cultures that had been in place for thousands of years, possibly dating back to the earliest records of humanity, that are just left as nothing more than dust and echoes as a result of the Dothraki scourge. But I find it, I find it hilarious that the Dothraki will take over uh, a city destroy it and then give it a new name right so then it's like later on they're like hey what about the ibish city and they're like i don't know what the hell they called it before but we call it the city of cowards like yeah that's a, that's a real serious alpha move right there it, the, the sun that I, I would just find fascinating to know why they got their name like uh the city of saras which is one of the sarnori cities is known now as the city of filth in dothraki what the hell happened there when the dothraki showed up they were probably taking too many baths right and they stunk like yeah, <laughs> they didn't have that grind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't have that nice little extra layer of dust just to keep the smell on their person. I understand. Well, shall we move right. on to dragons, or shall I keep on just naming yeah. various Dothraki cities? Uh, yeah, let's move on. The what happened to the dragons? Uh, okay, uh, I'm going to start this with, and you're going to love this. We don't know. And you know, I'll just exit there. You know, nice talking to everybody. Hope hope, hope this gets a ringing endorsement. You or come back I can to go the into some theories. Come back to the microphone. I need Summerhall. I need some Summerhall. We're going to get to Summerhall. Summerhall is going to be at the bitter damn end of this because it is at the bitter damn end of all, all of our thoughts associated with Duncan Egg and countless other things. It is a foundational event of what happens afterwards in Westeros. It is the lead-in by which Game of Thrones should really start with, more so than anything else. But getting to that point, we all know that dragons and, and the Targaryen people are strongly associated with each other. As we saw in that bath scene, it is something that the surviving Dothraki are very proud of, despite the fact that the dragons have been gone for well more than 100 years at this point. But you notice that Viserys really dodged the question as to what happened to the dragons. Uh, Doriac quizzed him a couple times on that subject, and he just kind of dodges it. Just says, you know, it wasn't great men that killed the dragons or anything else like that. They, you know, it was the great men that rode them. Just not answering her question. So what 
do we know happened to the dragons? And then what can we theorize from what we know in terms of what may have actually occurred? What we do know is that going back to about 129 years after Aegon's conquest, so about 170 years before the present, there were a hell of a lot of dragons located in Westeros. I mean, when Aegon the Conqueror and his sister wives, Reyna and Visenya, showed up, they only had three. They had, well, yeah, quiz question, sir, what was the name of the three dragons? Meraxes. That's one. Valerian the Black Dread. Very good. Um, give me just a second. <laughs> <laughs> and this this one's actually fun because it's the last survivor. It's one that survived into the war. I'm not going to talk about the Dance of Dragons. Vagar. Very good. When they first arrived, they had these three dragons, but they also were armed with countless dragon eggs. Between the offspring of these three dragons and their ability to, you know, nourish dragon eggs to life despite even being dormant for years, by 129 years after Aegon's conquest, at the end of the reign of King Viserys I, there were over there were at least 20 named dragons alive. There may have been more. That's just the 20 that we know about. Within a year, roughly about a year and a half later, there were five. This is the kind of devastation that occurred during what's known as the Dance of Dragons, the Great Targaryen Civil War, where the factions of the Reds and the Black, of the Greens and the Blacks squared off and fought themselves in such a suicidal fury that essentially House Targaryen never fully recovered. And among the, the emblems of House Targaryen that didn't recover were their dragons. It's a very, very symbolic point that occurred at the bitter end of the year 130 of uh, uh, after Aegon's conquest, roughly near a little after the middle of the uh, Targaryen Civil War of, of the Dance of Dragons, and pretty much marking near the end of the actual conflict, was that Queen Rhaenar Targaryen, the uh, first and last of her name, and the only Targaryen queen to ever assume sole control of Westeros, was placed before her brother Aegon II himself crippled, and beside himself, his crippled dragon, Sunfire. Sunfire, the dragon that was commonly regarded as the single most beautiful creature to ever happened to Westeros, the most beautiful and most impressive dragon that ever lived. Gold scales marching, uh, matching the Targaryen hair from the tip of his nose to the bottom of his tail. Massive in size, regal in, in terms of his bearing. And now, at the end, nearing the end of this conflict, left so thoroughly crippled that he could, could not even stand, much less fly. He had one eye ripped out of his skull. He had claw marks raking his back that were still bleeding and festering in a way that would never heal. His wings practically wrenched off, left so he was practically immobile, just sitting here in the same place where he fell. It is, again, incredibly symbolic and a testament to how devastating this conflict is, and to, uh, that here, in one of the last acts of the war, this brutalized, actively mortally wounded and dying dragon eats one of the last surviving members of the Targaryen family, bathing her in fire and then consuming what remained of her, and then himself dying not six weeks later. With the death of Sunfire, Aegon II's dragon, and the death of him shortly thereafter, there were only four dragons left alive. They were, I've got this right, it's Sheepstealer, Cannibal, Silverwing, and Mourning. Of these four, two, Sheepstealer and Silverwing, were essentially feral. They, oh, sorry, Cannibal and Silverwing were essentially feral. Cannibal being named that he was already a wild dragon before being briefly tamed to the Dance of Dragons and spent most of his time just eating other baby dragons. Silverwing being an ancient dragon that was thoroughly disciplined and thoroughly loyal, 
until this war, until its end stages, where it essentially said, screw you guys, I'm going off on my own, and made a home in the Reach and never dealt with anybody ever again. The other th- Smart uh, move. Yeah. Of the other two, Sheep Stealer had disappeared with Nettles, one of the dragon seeds, would never be seen again. And Morning was barely, had only recently hatched during the war, and so it was only about a year or two old. These were the surviving members of the Targaryen dragons at the end of the conflict, and they rough, their state roughly mirrored the state of the Targaryen family at the time. Now, there, as said, when the Targaryens first arrived, they'd only had three dragons, and so the idea of there being four survivors didn't seem that lethal. But for reasons we don't fully understand, it appears that of these four dragons and of their many surviving dragon eggs, only a single other dragon was ever born. The so-called well, last dragon. Can I can I can I step in? Please. Um, just a p- clarification point here, and tell me if I'm wrong. I, I may be remembering this incorrectly, but the fact that there were four wasn't that big a deal, in b- primarily because dragons don't necessarily need two to hatch an egg or to, to lay an egg, right? It doesn't like, seem that way. They can just. Yeah, so it's not like, you know, you're thinking about like four panda bears, right? You have to have two, you have to have a mix of male and female. It's not like that. They don't have gender and they don't need to interact with another dragon uh, to actually uh, lay eggs. Yeah, we don't know for certain whether they can necessarily self-fertilize. It's kind of implied. They certainly can switch gender as they go. And from what we know of the tar- of the dragon eggs, it doesn't necessarily need another dragon to nourish them to life. There seems to be How almost... Progressive. What'd you say? I said, how progressive? Oh. They can switch gender as they go? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, they, they live a very modern life. Uh, it seems almost like there was a particular form of ritual or magic or fire or something else that's kind of lost that is a key aspect of bringing these old dragon eggs that have possibly been sitting idle for years or centuries to life. It's a ritual the Targaryens inherently knew because they regularly were able to bring old dragon eggs back to some degree of established fate or established functioning in life. But for some reason, they couldn't. We don't know why. It's possible that the Targaryen family itself suffered so thoroughly during the course of the war that maybe like, you know, the lost Greek fire, those who had the knowledge or those who shared the knowledge had been so thoroughly devastated, they weren't there to pass it on to the next generation. But for whatever reason, and we're going to ponder and theorize that for a second, as best as we know, a single dragon, the last dragon, which we don't even know the name of, was born. As Viserys talked about, it was a sickly, misshapen, stunted thing. That whereas the dragons that came before it had, you know, their skulls lined the Great Keep, its skull, which sits next to the Targaryen throne, at least it used to, was roughly the size of an apple. Essentially no larger than a medium-sized dog. Now, there are any number of theories and ponderings as to why this occurred. Why even with the devastation that they suffered, why, by the end of the Dance of Dragons in 131 AC, every single dragon in Westeros was dead 20 years later. We don't know what happened to Cannibal, Silverwing, Morning. These are dragons that, you know, in the example of Balerion, the Black Dread, and Vagar, could easily live 200 years, and regularly did. How is it these dragons that were seemingly in the prime of their life, even if they were somewhat feral, were utterly, di- were utterly gone within 20 years. How is it that the, Tar- the Targaryens themselves, despite having 150 years of tradition before in terms of bringing dra- uh, dragon eggs to life, were no longer able to do so? Part of this could be, in many ways, a symbolic statement about 
or even an actual statement, about the long-term effects of the continual incest and limited breeding pool within the Targaryen line. That in many ways, having started from a relatively small pool of dragons that the original Targaryen, House of Targaryen brought with them when they fled Valeria shortly before the Doom, and seeing that population being thoroughly devastated by war, perhaps those existing dragons had various problems or just simply were not able to breed with the same regularity. Or perhaps in many ways they were mirroring the downfall of the house itself in terms of the effect of this loss of lineage, the effect of this loss of generations upon them. It's also possible in many ways that the dragons who are very much associated with magic, as we see with, with, with the uh, wizards of um, Karth and other ways, dragons and magic go hand in hand, that their presence can seemingly instill magic. It's also possible that in some ways they were just trying to maintain the magic that had been lost when Valeria itself was destroyed. And going now this far removed from the past, with the population thoroughly devastated and the Targaryens themselves destroyed, perhaps the magic itself that is apparently necessary for them to be born, for them to maintain, for them to exist, had frayed from the world and there were no longer a large enough base themselves to maintain it. And it wasn't until the rise of the winds of winter, the return of the... Um, the White Walkers themselves, 150 years later, that that kind of level of magic could return by which the dragons could again thrive and exist. Another theory, and one of the few theories that we actually have a character directly speak of in the text, is a theory offered by Marwyn the Mage. Lee, you remember who Marwyn the Mage is? Marwyn the Mage? Uh, no. No, I mean, I, it's. I'm going to tell you something right now spencer <laughs> uh my interest in the in the in the and you know this in the books and in the show is really around the sort of political yeah uh back and forth between the great houses and all of the sort of like the maesters and the lore and the magic it, it kind of loses me so i i'm sure i read it but i'm sure i skimmed it marwin the marwin the mage is uh, an interesting figure because we only get to meet him for one scene he's discussed at a few other moments but he's a figure that is so thoroughly steeped in magic it's hard to view him without it uh, he's the individual that apparently trained the uh, witch that would eventually lead to the death of Cal Drogo and of, of uh, Danny's son. He is an archmeister of the Citadel who has toured as far as a shy where no one else has apparently been or returned from, uh, and who is so thorough and is constantly, it's almost like in some ways an Indiana Jones figure in terms of his constant exploring for various magical artifacts and various knowledge about magic. If you go into his room, one of the first things you see is an obsidian candle, one of the challenges he sets for his students to try to light it as an example of magic returning to the world. And he's an individual that, as a result of his focus on magic, is rather ostracized from the rest of the Archmeisters of the Meister Order. Perhaps as a result of that, or perhaps as a result of some evidence that he doesn't really bother to share, he has an interesting theory about what happened to dragons. It's a theory that has captured the fandom, despite the fact that it is literally a single paragraph before he calmly wipes his hands and disappears from the story to go off and see Danny, and we never see him again. I can read it in its entirety, because again, it is basically three lines. Who do you think killed all the dragons? This is him, uh, Marwin, talking with Samuel Tarley when he shows up at the Citadel. Who do you think killed all the dragons the last time around? Gallant dragon slayers armed with swords? The world the Citadel was building has no place in it for sorcery or prophecy or glass candles, much less for dragons. Ask yourself why Aemon Targaryen was allowed to waste his life upon the wall, when by rights he should have been raised to Archmeister. His blood was why. He could not be trusted. No more, no more than, can, than I can. So the theory that he's putting forward is that the Meisters themselves played an integral role in the death of dragons, and in the possible 
prevention of new dragons being uh, uh, hatching and uh, growing to life. Now, we have very little beyond his word to speak for this, but it's an interesting theory to ponder because of any order that would be in all places at all times inherently trusted and tasked with all things related to medicine, science, or anything related to presumably feeding and caring for dragons, the Meisters are there first and foremost. If anybody could engage in a large-scale conspiracy, it certainly would be them. And we see in several ways that despite magic being an integral part of the world, an integral part of their history, each of the Meisters that we hear from makes active steps to either deny, reject, or banish its existence at every turn. The sole reason that they even have a Valerian still linked to their chain, the student and studies of magic, is to teach them that magic is a folly, that it doesn't actually exist, or if it, even if it did exist, it no longer remains in the world and should not and shouldn't be something that you waste your time upon. We also know that the Meisters are very stingy when it comes to certain knowledge and certain books that have fascinating titles like The Death of Dragons. Books that all we know about them is that they're at the base of the citadel, that it's a, it's a tome that's literally soaked in blood, and that no one can read it, and they're officially denying that it exists. So, what happened to dragons, in summary, roughly? Point number one, the Targaryens themselves and their foolhardiness resulted in the, essentially the end of their greatest degree of support. Point number two, uh... To the degree the Targaryens were unable to bring dragons back into the world, it could be indicative or symbolic of the fact that they themselves were a fallen house that would have to rise again in a new way that was no longer tied with the magic and legacy of the old. They had to find a way that was grounded much more in the people of the world. And as we see in Dunkin' Egg, in some ways they found that by finally setting a treaty, which their ancestors were never able to do with Dorne, and putting together an entire new crop by which the, Tar the, uh, the uh, Targaryen family could be strong once again just in time for another series of wars to start that devastated them again thoroughly. Theories number three. Perhaps, we have with very limited evidence, they were outside forces that were applied, not just simply associated with Targaryen foolhardiness and the death of magic, but perhaps an active force in the world that desired for magic to be eliminated to set a world of rules and orders and governing science that could be explained away rather than simply tied to ancient prophecy and magical forces beyond anyone's understanding or control. One thing that is very apparent from the text, though, is that the Targaryens, as much as they tried to find new bases of their power, I think even the young dragon essentially tried to build artificial dragons that spit wildfire, they still were desperately longing for the, old, for the times of old, for the ability to nourish new dragon eggs to life. We see in several ways that Aegon III, he who... In, he who was essentially put, into, put on the throne during the Hour of the Wolf following the end of the Dance of Dragons and became known in later life as Aegon the Dragon Bane because the last dragon died under his rule, brought, I think it was like nine wizards from Essos for the purpose of trying to bring new dragon eggs to life. He begged and pleaded over the eggs and all that he could find to try to bring new ones to life despite his personal hatred for them for after watching his mother consumed by sunfire many years before. We know that Baylor, the Blessed, uh, an individual who is mocked by the nobility and loved by the common folk for his legitimately almost insane religious fervor, spent almost every one of his nights praying over dragon eggs, trying to bring them to life through the power of his faith. And, Lee, as you referenced, one of the ultimate tragedies of this history, the central tragedy that in many ways set in motion the, game, the setting for Game of Thrones that would happen a few years later, was the tragedy at Summerhall. 
an event that happened during the end of the reign of, uh, what is he, is he Aegon the Fifth? I always lose track of which one Aeg was. I think Aeg was Aegon the Fifth. Of where we don't know exactly what occurred, but we know that Aegon, Egg, the central character of one of the central characters of Duncan Egg, and later became a Targaryen king in his own right, brought pretty much the entirety of his family to the Targaryen summer palace at Summerhall. We don't know why. Perhaps it was just part of a nice summer get together. But we do know that through the aid of wizards and ancient rituals and possibly forgotten knowledge, he tried to put in place some act that would restore various of the stone dragon eggs, including potentially his own, to life. And we know that whatever occurred, it quickly went out of control. And in, in the fiery devastation that resulted, the majority of the Targaryen line, including Aegon and his sons, died right then and there. We t- it's a, a fascinating gap in our knowledge. We know who was present. We know vaguely why they were there. We know vaguely something of the ceremony that occurred. But we don't know what went wrong. We don't know. We don't know the exact details of what play-by-play play occurred during this firestorm that resulted in a so thorough devastation of the Targaryen line that all that really remained to lead it afterwards was the Mad King and his son Rhaegar. It is a mystery that we can only hope we will be resolved at some point later on. I, both you and I, suspect that the end of the Duncan Eggs, that the the Duncan Egg series of novellas will end with the tragedy of Summerhall, the full ending of their line, because both Egg and Dunk himself died in the tragedy. And we can only hope that we will someday get to read what actually occurred and what marked truly, I would say, the end of dragons until their rise again under Danny uh, many decades later. Yeah. Um, well, I will offer my theory, and then I'll put the bill before uh, the legislative body. Um, my theory... Is that the tar- that two things that there's a lot of hubris going on here? Certainly. One, one for the maesters to think that they could control the death of all dragons and prevent them from hatching again. The the, the confidence is off the page. No. I have no faith that they have that kind of power or that kind of knowledge. So I dismiss that offhand just because we don't have any evidence other than just some kind of nomadic nut who might have been drinking just throwing out two lines about hey man. Who do you think got those dragons? That was us, man. Like, that's the type of shit you say, like, just when you're just bragging, but it's, like, not real. Oh, like, yeah. <laughs> there's nothing behind it, right? It's not like they're asking an unbiased source when that comes to the theory. This guy's life is magic. This guy's life is in direct opposition to what the rest of the order stands for. And there's no small amount of resentment between them. It's like it's like you want to, you know, try to find out if a conspiracy theory is authentic and you go to ask Alex Jones whether it's true. You're not guaranteeing a reliable source of information when you're going to that individual to confirm this suspect theory about what how the world is actually running behind the scene. Right. So I and then I also think that the, the Targaryens have a bit of hubris to think that their infighting could somehow affect these huge, majestic, magical beasts. That that would affect their ability to to either lay eggs or hatch eggs in the future. I also think is a bit of hubris. I think that we know as much about the dragons, how they are birthed, or how they, you know, how they're hatched, um, the magic they possess, and why sometimes they're able to exist in this universe and sometimes they're not, as we know about the White Walkers. I, I, so I say it's a, it, it, George is throwing out these things because in this type of world, when they're trying to make sense of something like dragons, of course, they would have theories about, 
you know, all kinds of things with them, but I think no one really knows. I agree. And I think it's worth noting that so little known are dragons that there's a book uh, entitled, I got it right here, uh, Against the Unnatural by Meister Vanyan, of where he directly theorizes that dragons weren't just weren't even just solely native to Valeria, that dragons actually existed in Westeros, the so-called ice dragons and other things, for thousands of years before the Targaryens even showed up. We're so uncertain as to their history. We're not even sure where dragons were originally located or where they might, where the uh, full scope of their range might have been, much less the various aspects of how they came about and how they'd functioned. So, yeah. And I think in some ways, as you said, the hubris of the Targaryens may have even contributed to that because whatever secret knowledge they had about what how dragons ran, how they were born, how, they were, how their eggs were maintained was truly secret knowledge that they kept to themselves and didn't bother to share. And I think the text in some ways strongly implied that Partially the reason that uh, dragons didn't continue to foster in Westeros was because they themselves either lost or forgot the integral basis by which their power was maintained. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, so I, I think that we we don't know, but it's uh, uh, it's <clears throat> it's interesting lore. And it's um, I think it's going to be a big part of, uh, like you say, the Duncan Egg series, but probably also uh, the next few books if we get them in the line of, uh, of the A Song of Ice and Fire, because... George needs to fill in the gaps a little bit here on, on especially Summerhall, but but some of the things that happen with the dragons and and our understanding of them. But more to come on that. I can tell you though, you've introduced such a controversial subject that this never reached the uh, the house floor. So this one died in committee. Sorry oh. about that. But but it was a good discovery. It was it was a good debate. <laughs> it got out of subcommittee, died in committee. So you know you can ha- you can. You can have a win there for that. Well, it, it's a very interesting question. It's part of the reason I think that Marwin the Mage is going to Danny because it's implied that me he may have knowledge about dragons and how new ones can be born that she lacks. I mean, Danny really doesn't know much. She's given a book on, on Targaryen dragon lore. Uh, Tyrion may be going to her, and he knows a lot about dragons, but even she doesn't really fully understand what occurred to make her three dragon eggs hatch, and so. Given that it is very likely, I mean, as you see on the show, Danny's dragons are fully capable of dying and likely and have died in the show. And I think that's also very true for what can happen in the books as well. That if she wants to use dragons as a continual basis of her power, she needs to acquire this ancient knowledge. She needs to find some way to learn about how new dragon eggs can be born and how dragons themselves work. And she has sources for that among the Meisters, among Marwin, among various other sources, but she needs to actively cultivate them and maintain them. Otherwise, this new basis by which her rule was you know, fostered and grown could be just as ephemeral as it was for the Targaryens, and she'll have to find a new basis of her power thereafter that I will just have to see whether she's equipped enough to do. Yeah, completely agree. Well, this has been a very fun episode, Spencer. I think this might have been the longest one we've done, which is appropriate because we've been off for about two months, so we had some things to catch up on, things to talk about. I have enjoyed it. Anything else you want to talk about with Season 1, Episode 4, Crippled Bastards and Broken Things? Uh, nothing other than I particularly enjoyed it, and I'm hoping that we can hit the next one in a shorter time frame than we did this one. I can promise the people that that will be the case. We will we will get the next one out probably a uh, week, week and a half. Anyway, we'll, we're going to shoot for that. Uh, thank you for joining us at the GOT Got Questions podcast. Uh, join us on the Mangum Talks podcast channel and our other uh, Mangum Talks podcast. We have Mangum Reads with Spencer and BJ. They're cranking those out. They're doing the work on those. We have uh, Mangum Talks Hoops, which is myself and Levi. We do that 
whenever we feel like it. And then <laughs> we have whiskey on the weekends, which is my personal favorite, where we can sit around, we drink whiskey, we talk, we tell stories, we have fun. Uh, thank you to all the listeners. Um, definitely check us out at www.mangumtalks.com or facebook.com slash mangumtalks or at mangumtalks on Twitter. Spencer, anything else you want to talk about before we go? See you next time, everybody. See you.